The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Todd Miles was my first professor when I started at Western Seminary a couple of years ago, up there working on my, uh, my master's degree, and um, I took a hermeneutics class, an introduction to uh, uh, biblical interpretation with him, and I, I knew I was sold on seminary right away. Um, he probably wouldn't want to hear this, but so far, so far, he's my favorite professor that I've had. I, I just, I love his style and the stuff that I've learned from. Um, he's kind of a walking encyclopedia and a really brilliant teacher, and I've just really gained from it. And so we brought him down this weekend. He's doing a workshop, and this is available if you guys or you know someone in your church that would want to be a part of it. It's free. We'd love to have you if you want to come. Um, he's going to be doing a workshop tonight at 6.30 and then starting again tomorrow at 10 for a couple hours on um, how to um, approach Scripture, how to read and interpret scripture. And so he'll be like introducing some biblical axioms for us to keep in the back of our mind and then walking through different texts and kind of using them and teaching people how to walk through some of that stuff. It was a phenomenal, literally I I read scripture differently now because of that class and and just loved it. And so with him coming down, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to gather you guys together because a couple of years ago we were up at Cannon Beach at a workshop um, conference actually that... um, that Western puts on called the Spurgeon Fellowship. And if you guys don't know about that, trust me, pastors, Google that. It happens quarterly, and they bring in speakers from all over. They've had D.A. Carson. That one was Alistair Begg. Um, and they're always free. Just Western desires to really pour into um, the local churches here in Oregon. And um, while we were there, Todd did a workshop there on um, getting ahead of the curve. And it's about theological issues that the church is facing um, that they're seeing there maybe on, the, uh, on that end of things at Western. And about having just a a good biblical and theological response to them. And um, it really stirred us up. We've changed even a lot of things that we do as a church um, in light of some of the things he taught at that particular one. Um, But there's been some law changes even since then, so he's going to cover a couple of different ones like pot and stuff like that. But I just thought it'd be a great way for us to be able to bless you guys and for us to all um, build the kingdom of God collectively here and protect all all of our own flocks from some of the things that are coming towards our people because these are some legitimate attacks that the average Christian probably isn't theologically prepared for. So this is good for us to know. So um, if you guys would, could you guys welcome Todd Miles with me? Thank you. Um, Now I I know that I will not meet expectations at all. I I was told by one person that the key to contentment is to have low expectations. So... Um, I just know I have more classes coming for you. <laughs> That's right. So um, let me introduce myself to you just, just briefly. Uh, my, my name is Todd, and that's, your, that's what I prefer to be called because that's, that's the name my mom gave me. So, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, what do I do? Well, I teach theology at Western Seminary, and, and I teach Bible interpretation. I teach... Um, let me hook this up so it's not dragging on me. Um, sorry, there we go. Uh, I, I teach uh, hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. I teach pastoral ethics. And I church, teach church history. I, I feel like I just have a great life. I, I, I serve as an elder at Henson Church. Um, we were between pastors for a little while. I got to do most of the preaching there. It was just during that time. It was, it was just a great, great period of, of my life. Um, my wife's name is Camille. We've been married tw- almost 22 years. It'll be 22 years, I think, this July. Um, we have six children. 
I don't, that's probably all you need to know. <laughs> that's tough. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, if, if if questions come up, then by you'll get to know me more than I'm going to get to know you during this time here. Um, I, I don't have like a specific time agenda. I don't know how long this will take, but I'll tell you what my goal is, because I know that Friday is a work day for pastors, typically. Um, and, and so I'd like to spend like a half hour just kind of working through quickly these topics, but then maybe having, you know, some Q&A on there. And, and I don't know exactly the right, how we want to do this or how long you guys are thinking of being committed here, but, but I would like to get through all three topics and, and then think through in Q&A form. So that way if people want to, you can stay as long as you want, I suppose. Um, and I, I do have to do something tonight at 6 o'clock, so I'll probably <laughs> be a good time to stop then. So, uh, you know, Jeff introduced the, the, the topic here. What's, what is it that I, that I was asked to do? What is it that I want to do this morning? Well, um, the, 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 it's called, the title on there is Staying, Staying Ahead of the Curve. Um, you know that the ministry is, is profoundly theological, right? Um, that, that doesn't mean that it's not practical. It just means that uh, it's theological. We are ministering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are following him. He is the one who sets the agenda. God is particular, isn't he? He's particular in that he's one way and not always. Right? He's, he, he's a person in that regard. In, in, in some sense, not any different than you or I. There's a particularity to us. I'm, uh, I am who I am. And it doesn't matter what you think about who I am. You, know, you don't create me by thinking of me. I guess that's just all I'm trying to say there. It's the same with God. Right? Uh, God is not all that everyone imagines him, him to be. Um, and so because of that, we can be right in our thinking about the Lord and how to do ministry, but we can also be wrong about who God is. And, and, and I would suggest to you, as you know, there's a lot of uh, bogus ideas about who the Lord is. Um, and, you know, Portland, Oregon is um, pointlessly strange. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it, it's kind of like the petri dish of postmodern thought. And, and I know that for people in Southern Oregon, because I, I grew up in Southern Oregon, I, I grew up in Myrtle Point, um, Oregon, over not, not Myrtle Creek, but Myrtle Point, right? Like you're going towards the coast over near Coos Bay. And I lived in Vail, Oregon, way over on the eastern side, almost Idaho. So I totally get how Portland is perceived by the rest of the state. I mean, if, if you look at the voting breakdown, uh, the state's pretty red, except for a couple patches of deep, deep, deep blue. And, and those, that deep blue part controls the state in its politics. So, so I, I, I understand all this. I, I said it's kind of the petri dish for postmodern thought. I, I, I went and I did my doctoral work in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and, um, and people would always say, man, Portland, Oregon, that, this is just weird, or Oregon. I mean, when they think of Oregon, they think of Portland, you know, Portlandia, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, and, and I tell them, oh, we're just ahead of the curve. You guys are going to be facing the same stuff we are. And they just laugh. No, never. And now I get to call my friends in Kentucky and in Alabama 
And I get to tell them, well, your state legalized gay marriage before Oregon did. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and they just, uh, 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 you know, they're just flustered over that whole thing. But, um, I, I, it's a petri dish, and, and there's, so, there's some goofy, goofy stuff in Portland, as you well know. Um, and some of it sticks, and some of it doesn't, thankfully. Uh, more sticks than what you might think ought to. But, uh, so, what I'd like to do is to think with you about stuff that the local church is facing, challenges that local churches are going to have to face, and, they, and you need to kind of gird yourself for this because it's coming. Now, in many ways, what, the three things I wanted to talk with you about today are not new in any regard. Uh, the, the arguments that are being put forward by those who have a certain kind of agenda, they're not all that new, but they're packaged very attractively. They're packaged very, very attractively. And, and, and it's not, you know, there's not a theological or philosophical wall that surrounds Portland and Seattle and these, and these towns. The stuff makes its way out, especially with the internet. And, and, and I know that you as pastors deal with that in your own congregations, that, that you're not the only pastor in their life, right? Because there's people who are preaching and teaching who are just a mouse click away. Right? And so, I know that, that you, you all get that. The, the three things that I wanted to talk with you about this morning. One is, um, this can, it's going to sound kind of boring when I say it, but it's gonna, the, the doctrine of Scripture. Can we trust what we have in the Bible? And then I want to talk with you a little bit about uh, homosexuality and, and, and what's, what's coming and what is coming from the church itself, from within the church, what, what kind of agenda is being set, um, and what, what kind of books are people reading. Um, and, and then third, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about marijuana <laughs> as well. Um, because it, it's patently obvious now, it's probably always been the case, but it's patently obvious now that the state is not a good determiner of what right and wrong is. Right? And so for a long time, when it came to, the, to marijuana, if someone came to you and said, is it okay to, to smoke pot, you could just say, well, no, it's against the law. Right? You could just say that. And it's, uh, now, you can't say that anymore, can you? Well, I guess you can until, what, July 15th or something? Something like that. Um, but you can't say that anymore. And so, uh, and of course, we border Washington, you know, just right across the river is Washington. Immediately after Washington legalized marijuana, a, a young man came to us and he said, would it be okay if I went across the, the river and, and bought some pot and smoked it there? Came back, would there be anything wrong with that? And, and, and it would have been legal. It would have been legal. And, and so what do we do as a disciple-making church? We have to up our game, right? We can't just say, well, uh, it's against the law. Because the law is not the determiner of what is right and wrong. They, they can help. They can also be a hindrance. And, and I know that as you sit there, you can think of many situations where, where there are things that are legal that uh, are ungodly. Okay, and, and so how are we supposed to think about this? So here's so so this is what this is my agenda. I, I want to go through this fairly quickly, but ask questions as we go, and then I'll I'll try to pause and, and give you some some um, 
some opportunity just to reflect amongst ourselves and think on this. So the first thing I want to do is, is I want to think about the Bible. And, and here's why. Uh, Christmas time, did any of you see the, 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 the issue of Newsweek? Um, okay, so the cover story of Newsweek, just about every Christmas and every Easter, there's Time or Newsweek will do some sort of cover story hoping to debunk the, you know, the virgin birth or the, the, uh, the, the resurrection. Well, Newsweek apparently had kind of paused as a print magazine and then they re-released. And their opening issue uh, was written uh, by a person whose last name is Eichenwald. I can, Kurt Eichenwald is his name, uh, December 23rd, 2015, the cover story, the Bible, so misunderstood, it's sinful. So misunderstood, it's sinful. And, and it's a very provocative piece, and if, if you do a quick Google search, well, actually, I think I gave you the link for it there. Um, and uh, it's a very provocatively written piece because he basically makes the claim that Christians who claim to read the Bible and claim to follow the Bible religiously have never in fact actually read the Bible before. You've never read the Bible. Well, why is that? Because we don't actually have the Bible. And, and, and so he, he makes a series of arguments against the reliability of Scripture. And it is, I'll tell you right now, that it is an embarrassingly written article. The, the research on it is so bad as to be a joke. And I, I give you in the footnotes a couple of responses to it. A couple of responses to it. And it's interesting because in, in the academy, there's a certain way to do things. And, and you need to be respectful. You need to be respectful. Um, so you know an article is really bad when basically the, the academic response to it is, Newsweek should apologize to America for running such a lousy, rotten article. So that's what I'm here to tell you. It's a lousy, rotten article. Yet, it sounds like it's true as you read it. And what I'd like to do is just to kind of walk through, not the article, but the kinds of arguments that he makes against the reliability of the Bible. Against the reliability of the Bible. And as a Christian, this is kind of framing everything that I want to say to you this morning. As a Christian, you need not fear the truth. We have the truth on our side. And I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me what the topic is. Delve into it. Pour into it. Study it. Okay? As, a, as a Christian, we should be committed to the exposure and the propagation of the truth. And when it comes to the Bible, we should be fine by directing our congregants, the people in our churches, to say, let's study this together. You need not be afraid about asking these questions. There are no so-called skeletons in God's closet right? when it comes to the Bible. And, and, and let's just own it. Let's own the scripture for what it is. I think the Bible is the most incredible book ever written. Now, I know that Christians are supposed to say that, right? But on analysis, there is nothing like the Bible. I, I, I love the doctrine of inspiration. I love the creation of the canon in history. I think it's just wonderful. There is no other book that has ever been written that, that can come even close to the way that Scripture was written, the kind of claims that the Bible makes about itself. We need, I, I delight in talking about the Bible. 
I love talking about the Bible, and I love talking about the canon. You know, way back in church history, how we got the Bible. I don't think we have anything to be embarrassed about that. Let's just own it, because I think that the doctrine of inspiration and the development of the canon is what makes the Bible great. It's what makes the Bible great. It makes it real. It makes it applicable. All of that. So, um, what I want to do... Oh, okay, so, so here's, here's my, my thing with the scriptures here. Is that there are a series of people, and I don't, I don't know what their agenda is, but I know what Satan's agenda is for them in doing this, is they want to diminish people's confidence in the scriptures. That, that's what they want to do. Um, so whether it be like Dan Brown doing the Da Vinci Code thing or at a more academic level, you know, Bart Ehrman who teaches at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. um, oh, that's right. Uh, so uh, Bart Ehrman is a professor uh, at, at Carolina Chapel Hill, who, for whatever reason, has this perverse delight in taking young, naive Christians and just cutting their legs out from under them when it comes to things related to Scripture. Uh, he's a very charismatic fellow. I don't mean like um, a Christian charismatic. I, I mean like a really attractive guy with, with presence and people like him. And he sounds... Uh, he's, he's very engaging when you watch him in, in debates. He, he's a YouTube hero right now. Um, uh, so, so, so he he makes these kind of arguments, and then this Kurt Eichenwald in, in Newsweek. So, so here's here's some so so what I have here very quickly some some accusations regarding the reliability of Scripture, and then um, and then I want to respond to those. I want to respond to those because I don't think we need to fear anything about Scriptures. So, so, so here's one of the the questions: uh, the, the Bible's not reliable because the transmission of the text from when it was first written to when it came to be the, the canon is just a joke. The Bible is not reliable because it was written hundreds of years after Jesus lived by people who were not witnesses, right? And, and, and the language is, all scholars know, all scholars know that the, that the people who wrote the Bible lived hundreds of years after Jesus uh, came and went. Uh, the method by which the Bible has come to us is much like the telephone game. And, and in this Eichenwald argument, he t now, I mean, you guys are all familiar with the, with the telephone game, right? Is it Zoom? You hasn't heard the tape? Yeah, it's like a youth group game. Um, and Eichenwald makes this claim that that the that the Bible was it's just a copy of 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 a copy, and each time you get further and further and further away. Uh, this renders the Bible at best unknowable, at worst dishonest. And so he makes the claim: nobody's ever actually read the Bible. What you call the Bible was is a copy of 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 a copy, and it's just like the telephone game. Each time it gets further and further and further away. Each time people put their own agenda into it. Well, the response to this is, is that that's not true. That's not true. First off, scholars don't think, most scholars don't believe that the Bible was written hundreds of years after Jesus. I mean, it depends on what you mean by the Bible to begin with. We know that the majority of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was written long before Jesus lived. And, and then most scholars actually would date the uh, the. New Testament letters in, in the first century sometime. 
even some of the most liberal scholars, even a person like Bart Ehrman, uh, would say, no, the, the, the New Testament was written in, in the first century. And we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, and we find more all the time. We, we currently have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament itself. Of the New Testament itself. It, bits and pieces of it. Many of them date all the way back to the second century, some of which were, now they're just scraps because things don't last long, um, the scraps that date all the way back to the first century. And the number continues to grow. And, and historically, there is no other book that has been copied so meticulously or carefully copied as the scriptures, as the Bible. Uh, how many of you have heard Josh McDowell speak on, you know, evidence that demands a verdict? It's, it's like the most hideously boring book ever written, right? It, it's not even a book that you would sit and read. It's like a collection of research is what it is. But his stuff is still applicable to answer some of these questions. The, the, the smokescreen out there is people will just say, well, the academy says, scholars say, you know, that the, the Bible was... You know, the, the figment of, of power-hungry men's imagination some 400 years after Jesus died. Well, that's just not true. It's not true. Um, and so, another issue. Textual variations. There are thousands, thousands of variations in the manuscripts that we have. Thousands of them. There, there have been so many editions since the original writings and, and that, that, the, that Eichenwald claims, you know, we can't be sure that any word that we're reading is actually original. And, and, and my response to that is, that ain't true. <laughs> that is not true. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's made up. It's a figment of the author's imagination. Um, and, and Bart Ehrman would recognize this too. Now, here's what we do need to recognize. Here's what we do need to recognize. Is there are a lot of textual variations in the texts that we have. We, 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 we dig stuff up out of the dirt. We find, you know, a shepherd boy throws a stone into a cave and pot pottery breaks and he goes in and finds the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. We're finding more and more and more all the time. And every time that we find a manuscript, it, it creates the possibility that we'll have another variation, right? That, that, that will be at variance with the other ones we have. But what we're finding is that the more manuscripts that we have, the more confident we can have into what actually is the New Testament. Um, if, if you've ever seen a tip, and I didn't bring one with me, but if you've ever seen a typical Greek text before, so I'm going to do this visually like I'm making something up. Um, so here's like your page of a Greek text in, a, in your typical like Greek Bible that if you, if, for those of you who went to seminary and took Greek, you, you can picture what I'm saying here. So, so here's your typical page, and, and in the top part, it has the text. And in the bottom part, it's called the apparatus, and it has all the different textual variations that are there. Okay? And now, Christians have never ever been ashamed or afraid of the fact that there are some variations between the manuscripts that we dig up out of the dirt. Okay? They're all right there. Nobody's trying to hide anything. They're all right there. But, and, and, and there are thousands of them. At times, at times even, there's more apparatus than there is biblical text. Rarely, but at times there, there is. But then you start looking at those textual variations and you realize that the overwhelming majority of them cannot even be translated. They're like misspellings of patently obvious words. It would be like, um, like, 
like instead of the word plane, like P-L-A-I-N, it, it said P-L-A-I-N-D. Well, what kind of word is that? You can't even translate that. Okay? So, yeah, there are thousands of, vari uh, of variances in the different texts that we've, that we've found. But most of them can't even be translated. And, and then you look at the places where there is something kind of significant, and what you find is that it has no implications for theology or practice or the dogma or the faith or anything. Uh, they're, they're very, very small. Uh, the, the author points out that John 8, the, you know, the story of the uh, woman about to be stoned for adultery, um, and, and, and he, he pulls back the curtain like it's a dirty secret. Most Christians don't even know that that story was not written by John and doesn't belong in the Bible. Um, and then he goes to Mark 16. Uh, you know, the, the, the ending to Mark. And he says, most Christians don't even know that most scholars don't believe that the ending to the book of Mark isn't there. And then he goes to 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. Um, as, as though every Christian out there is reading nothing but the King James Version. And he points out that that verse, 1 John 5, 7, is not in, is not in most of the manuscripts. And, and, you know, like there's this big deception going on. Well... I think if you go to John 8, you'll see a little footnote in your Bible, and it's in every translation. It's in every translation. It says something like, in, in, in most of our older manuscripts, John 8 doesn't appear. You know, that story of the woman caught in adultery. And in most of our manuscripts, the ending to Mark 16 doesn't appear. There's no attempt to defraud or to hide this. You know, and so what do I think? That in, in 1 John 5, 7, it... it, it most people don't read King James anymore. King James is still, I think, the third highest selling Bible out there, or second or third. It's NIV and then ESV King James. Um, the, the only place where 1 John 5, 7 appears is in the, is in the King James. Right? So there's no attempt to, to hide, the, hide that truth from anybody. It's true, so I, in my response to that, it's true there are thousands of variations of the manuscripts we have, but that's a function of the sheer number of the texts that we have. Of course, if you have copies made by people, people are going to make mistakes. Uh, I think it's, a good th it's good that we have thousands of copies of this. Overwhelming majority of variations can't be translated. There are no doctrines that are affected by textual variations. And then as we get more and more manuscripts, our precision grows. And so I like to tell people so that, um, you know what, you're right. We don't have the original manuscripts. We don't have them. And I'm totally fine telling people that. But I think that we have them in our Greek text, though. We might not have the original copies, but we do have the original words. They're either, so here's my page, they're either up here, or they're down here. But either way, we've got them. We've got them. We have the original words of Paul. We have the original words of John. They're there. You can check out the apparatus if you want. Nobody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. There's no hidden agenda, nothing like that. I mean, in the new editions of the NIV, they're even putting the John 8 story, the woman caught in adultery, and the Mark 16 ending in italics. Right? So there's no effort by our Bible publishers to do, to, to do this. Uh, you know, to, to try to trick people or anything like that. Uh, textual variations, yeah, they're there. Own it. Right? It's okay. It's okay, though. Translation issues. The translators of the Bible all had a theological agenda. You know, they're, they're like power-hungry men, right? Probably power-hungry 
you know, Westerners. And how that worked, I don't know. They're, they're, I'm sure they were Jewish guys, but you know, it's it's always good to have power-hungry Western men. Um, there's no consistency in how they translate words. So, like, they'll say something like, and, I mean, this is what Eichenwald's doing. Now, I want you to think logically about this. And, and, and we in America are not good at thinking logically. We don't know how to follow an argument. We get tricked by advertising all the time. There, there's, there's no logic to most advertisements, right, on television. You've noticed this, haven't you? So, like, um, for, for uh, Mayo products that are usually on, on football Sundays, right? They don't actually tell you what the pill does. What do they do? They have some sad sack guy. He's got an attractive wife. I'd rather watch Laverne and Shirley, something like this. But then you take the pill, right? Next thing you know, what? He's outside. He's throwing a football through the TV, and, and, and he catches the, catches the eye of his wife, and you know, they decide to go off in the back room or something, and, and you go, Oh, I, I got to get that. I got to get that. I, I mean, everything's experience, right? Everything's experience. I don't actually know what those pills are going to do to my body. Right? I, don't, I don't know, but, but if I can throw... I've never been able to throw a football through a tire before. And if I take that pill, then I can do that. Holy smoke, I got to get this. And, and, and I mean, but just to think logically about how arguments are done. And, and so, so, so this is one of the arguments that Eichenwald makes in his Newsweek article. He says, they don't, there's no consistency in how they translate Greek words. If you look at the original Greek, you'll find a number of, of words that are translated different ways into different English words. Um, he goes, clearly there's a theological agenda here. I mean, the Bible translators are not even honest enough to translate the same Greek word with the same English word consistently. And, 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 and our people will read that. Our, our youth will read that. They'll be watching stuff on YouTube and they'll hear something like that and they'll go, oh, that's not right. Why would you translate the, a Greek word into an English word here and then translate that same exact Greek word into a different English word here? Surely there's a theological agenda going on here. And, but on analysis you go, yeah, there's a theological agenda. We want to... It's called accuracy of translation. It's called wanting the truth. Because you know, don't you, right, that words have what we call a semantic range. I mean, if I were to say the word green to you, throw out to me some, some, um, some, some definitions of what green could be, some, some different meanings of green. But, and uh, there's no context, just the word green. What could green mean? New. Nauseous. Nauseous, like you're sick. Environmentalist. Money. Envious. Envious. It could be... Wow, weird. A color. Could be a color. Could be a color. It, 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 it could be a putting surface, right? Now, what, that's the semantic range of green. And English words have a long semantic range. But, like, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but basically, if you look at the most thousand, the, the top 1,000 commonly used English words, they have an average of 15 different meanings. Okay? And we're just used to that because we grew up speaking English. We get this, right? Is English the only language that there's a semantic range to words? 
No. Greek's like that. Hebrew's like that. Spanish is like that. There's a semantic range. And so, of course, you're not going to translate the same Greek word with the same English word every single time. Context is going to drive that, right? There's no, there's no reason to, 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 uh, to uh, be concerned about that. Um, of course, translation, translators are not completely unbiased. Of course they are. I mean, of course they're not. Of course there's interpretation in translation. There's always going to be, because there's no such thing as a one-to-one -one equivalent between Greek and English or Hebrew and English. Of course that's going to be the case. Of course different English words will translate the same Greek word. No two languages share a one-to-one -one equivalent of words, nor are they the same grammatically. Words have a semantic range, but a word will have meaning in context. That's, I say that all the time in my Bible interpretation class. Words don't have meaning they have meanings, but they have meaning in context, right? Uh, contradictions in the text. So you're reading along in Newsweek, or you listen to Bart Ehrman, he'll say the scriptures are full of contradictions and historical accuracies. And here's what I think we should say. Show me. Where? Where are these contradictions? Where are these inaccuracies? Most of the time, when people talk about contradictions, uh, the, the things they're calling contradictions are so silly that on, on analysis you think, are you, that can, are you, that's a contradiction? So, so here's a favorite one. It's even used by Eckenwald in his article. He says that at, uh, at one point, in one of the Gospels, Jesus talks to women on his way to the cross. In another one of the Gospels, there's, he doesn't talk to women at all. Contradiction. Really? Seriously? <laughs> I mean, it would be a contradiction if, it's, if one text said, on the, way to, on the way to Calvary, Jesus saw some women and talked to them. And then another gospel said, on the way to Calvary, Jesus saw some women, but he did not talk to anybody. Now, that would be a contradiction. But just because one gospel author puts one thing in the text and another gospel writer, for whatever reason, leaves it out, that doesn't mean that's a contradiction. Okay? This is the kind of stuff that we're up against. This is the kind of stuff that we're up against. Now, are there some other ones that are more difficult? Yes, there are. But I think there are plausible explanations for all of them. I have not run into anything in the Bible where I'm just stymied, where it's like, man, this is a total contradiction. There's got to be an error here. And I don't think we need to fear that. And the, the, I think this is what we have to be communicating, especially to our youth especially to our youth, you don't need fear putting the Bible to the test. If it's the Word of God, it will stand. It will stand. We don't need to be afraid. The, the Bible is not a book that we take on faith, whereas we are asked to believe a bunch of nonsense. Okay? Uh, yes, faith is important in the Christian life. It's, it's the, that's how we're saved, right? But that doesn't mean that we are asked to believe stupid and wrong things. We are not, as pastors, the Queen of Hearts in Wonderland asking Alice to believe seven silly things before breakfast. That, that is not what Christian ministry is. You need not be intellectually afraid as a Christian. I feel totally intellectually justified as a believer and, and, and I am willing to, to talk to anyone and, and our youth especially need to know this because I think that there's this de facto idea that the Bible's to be taken by faith and if we can just close our eyes, hold our nose and swallow it, our life will somehow be better. But that, 
That's not what we're asking people to do as disciples. It's not what we're asking them to do. Um, so when people say, hey, there's lots of different contradictions and historical accuracies in the text, my response and your response should be, really? Where? Show me. Let's look at these. There are some hard things in Scripture. There are some things that appear like they almost could contradict, but there are plausible explanations. There are plausible explanations. I don't know if they're the right explanation, but if there's a, such thing as a plausible explanation, then it's no longer a contradiction. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, it's oh, <laughs> another thing. Uh, I can well... He says, boy, you know, the Bible makes all these ridiculous claims about numbers and historical inaccuracies. And, and I think that it's only when we demand illegitimate precision of language, ignoring things like context and genre, different legitimate ex perspectives of different writers, figures of speech, that we find contradictions. It's only when we do that. But when we understand that the Bible is literature written by humans, the way that humans write... I mean, here's an example. I've read this before. The Bible says that Abraham would have as many children as there are grains of sand on the seashore. Okay? Now, I think that is not technically accurate in a very wooden way, right? I mean, how many grains of sand are on the, on the seashore? Um, <laughs> like... Billions and billions and billions, billions and billions, 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 right? A ridiculous number, okay? Um, and, and so when people say, see, uh, Abraham didn't have that many kids, that's a historical inaccuracy. It's a scientific inaccuracy. I think we can say, that's not a literal statement. What is the point? Abraham's got no kids, and God says, look down at the sand. Look down at the sand. I'm going to give you that many kids. Meaning, you don't have any kids right now. And, and I know your heart. You'd settle for one, right? You would settle for... Have you ever thought about that with Abraham? Uh, his, his name's Abram. And then God makes this promise of all these kids. And a decade goes by. And then he says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. Exalted father of many. All right. I'm going to call myself Abraham. But Lord, you haven't even given me one kid yet. Not even one. It's getting a little frustrating, Lord. I go and introduce myself. Hey, what's your name? Abraham. Oh, exalted father of many. Where are your kids? Well, I don't know how many. So he does this, right? But, but and the point is, is that he goes, look, Abraham, look down. You're going to have that many kids. Look up at the stars. Can you count them? No, you can't. That's the whole point. You're not even going to be able to count the kids. You can't count the grains of sand. You're going to have so many. Now, if, if we were somehow able to count the actual grains of sand and then say, this is exactly how many kids Abraham's going to have, well, no, that wouldn't be the point. It's a figure of speech. It's called hyperbole. It's exaggeration to make a true point. And we do it all the time. There, I just did it again. Right? That, that was hyperbole. We don't speak hyperbolically all the time, do we? Technically. But, and, and yet when I said, when I said, hey, uh, we use hyperbole all the time, none of you were thinking, liar, you don't actually use it all the time. You use it only some of the time. Be exact and precise in your words. But I think you, you understood what I meant when I said, we use hyperbole all the time. Right? It, it's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech. And I think we can do the same thing um, as we understand what are the biblical authors trying to do. I believe the Bible is 100% accurate in everything that it affirms. Absolutely. 
absolutely accurate in everything it affirms. Um, but the language of, af of what it's actually trying to affirm often comes in figures of speech. Figures of speech. Right? All right. Um, now, this isn't rocket science, is it? This isn't that tough. And yet, when you read Eichenwald, when you hear Biermann, or, or, or I'm not Biermann, Airman, when you hear Airman, Biermann's where I teach, Airman, you're thinking, oh, these are not the droids I'm looking for. Oh, the Bible does have many errors. Oh, there are contradictions. Oh, it's like the telephone game. I've never actually read the Bible before. No, you have read the Bible. You have. Um, more orthodox here canon until Constantine. This is a favorite canard. It's so f historically bogus. The, the, the idea that came put forth in Da Vinci Code, and it's repeated again by Archenwald, is that the Bible, the canon was forced to be put together by Constantine when he was, for political reasons, trying to stabilize his empire in the early 300s. And my response to that is, that's just false. Constantine exerted no influence whatsoever on what books are in the Bible. None. Zip. Nada. And no one believes that Constantine had any influence over what books are in the Christian canon, including Bart Ehrman. And yet Eichenwald throws it out there as a true thing. Um, because Constantine was evil, right? He, was, he had political goals and agenda. We need to recognize this. The, the, the church doesn't canonize books. If we were Roman Catholic, we would believe that the church... Any, I, I wasn't listening to any Roman Catholics in here. Okay. We don't believe that the church canonizes books. We believe that the church was created by the canon, basically. And the church has recognized those books that have been for, uh, formational for them. Uh, the church doesn't canonize books. God does. The church recognized that canonicity. Most books of our current New Testament were recognized everywhere, and all the books were recognized in most places. So, so that's my, my main point here, is, is that long before Constantine, all the books that are currently in our New Testament were recognized in almost every place where the church was. And this happened quick. This happened early 100s. All the books in most places most of the books in all the places. Okay? And we think, yeah, but why weren't all the books recognized instantly everywhere? Why is it most of the books everywhere and all the books in most places? Why isn't it just all the books in all the places? Well, I think that's the accident of history. Now, it's easy for us to imagine that if, if the church came out with a list of books, that that could be propagated just like that, right? With the internet. Um, there was no internet in the f first century. There were no printing presses. Uh, there was no, you know, uh, UPS one-day delivery. How did you get a book from one place to another? You had to basically physically walk it. You had to physically copy it by hand, and then you had to physically walk it. There. That takes time. I think it's remarkable that by the time we get to the early second century, the church has been going for like 50 years, that all the books were recognized in most places and most of the books were recognized everywhere and it was just a matter of catching up. Most of the churches didn't have access to all the books immediately. They would get them piece by piece, one book by one book. I mean, there was no such thing as a codex. That is, uh, this is a codex, right? It's a bound um, front and back pages sewn together, bunch of book, what we call a book, a codex. They didn't have these until like the third century or fourth century or so, right about the time where people began to ask questions of, well, what books actually belong in the canon? Because now that we can make a codex, now that we can actually bind together multiple books, what books should I bound 
together, bind together. Okay? I, so I think the fact that, that all the churches didn't have all the books just like that, that's more because of where they were in human history at the time. The propagation of those books is a pretty remarkable thing. All right, so um, that's it. Um, that's, that's all I'm going to at least do here. I just want you to know, especially with our youth, I'm, I'm concerned. I, I'm concerned about the next generation that's going to leave, that they're hearing these people and they're reading these things. And it, it sounds like, right, really? This is not the book you think it is. These are not the droids you're looking for. And our youth go, these aren't the droids I'm looking for. This is not the book I think it is. And, and, and then they go off to university and they run into some snarky professor who gives the worst criticism of Christianity, just the poorest excuse for an argument against the reliability of the Bible. And, 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 and at times our youth are like, whoa, I got nothing to say in response. This guy must be right. Uh, any, any thoughts or questions on that? I would encourage you to uh, go, go read that Newsweek article. And then I, I gave you some responses to it as well. Um, I, I, I threw a few books out there. Um, that book by Paul Wegner, The Journey from Text to Translations, is, is a book that I wish I had had when I was in seminary. Um, it's, it's a great book, and it's got pictures. You could, it's almost like a coffee table book. And, and he explains how we got the Bible. And it, it wasn't by magic. It wasn't by magic. And I don't think we have to be ashamed of how we got the Bible. I think it's an incredible story of how, that, of how we got it. Yeah. I'm going to turn my phone off here. It's beeping at me. Go ahead. So, so what you're really talking about is the issue of authority. And we, we've, we've accepted Scripture as authoritative. Mm -hmm. um, that's what you're encouraging and, and challenging us to, especially with our youth. Yeah. And yet generationally, <clears throat> um, you know, some of the arguments you've presented have been very um, logical and point by point yep. and um, apologetic. Mm -hmm. that is, is that the next generation? Is that how they're going to critically assess authority? Or is there Probably not. authoritative... Um, techniques that are authoritative, you know, apparatuses yeah. that they're yeah. depending on. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's all sorts of different kinds of tests for truth, and and each generation kind of has a favorite kind of test for truth. I alluded to that with with the advertisement thing, right? Uh, for for us in our world, what is true. And, and by us, it, let's, let's just say like you're a 20-something or a teenager. What would be true would be that which works, that which can be experienced, that which brings coherence and value to your life, right? And so, it, and because I'm different than, than you are, then what could be true for me might not be true for you, but it can still be true, because it's, as long as it's just for you. Don't, imp don't impose your truth on me. And um, so w what I would suggest there is I think that we need to address people where they're at. But, but eventually it has to be grounded on something that's right. And, um, and uh, um, now that's going to take a, a, a lot of, of discussion to be done in relationship. But I, I would encourage people to, to think through this idea um, our young people. Yeah, you do see other people who seem to be getting along very well. But, but, but let's, let's think about what the Bible claims and let's, let's look at that. Um, 
Experience is important. I mean, Christian testimony is an argument from experience. We know how persuasive Christian testimony is. So I don't think we need to be afraid of that. Um, uh, I like, when I'm engaging people who are younger, I, I like to engage them at, at, at the level of presuppositions. Um, and uh, most presuppositions are statements of fact. They're like the non-negotiables. And, and then from that, you build on here. But if you can get people to begin to question their, their operating presuppositions, then you can, I think you can, uh, um, move from just defense to persuasiveness. And, and remember that, that these arguments against Scripture that are being presented, their goal is to cause young Christians, basically, and older, whoever's listening, to question their presuppositions. And I think we need to be convinced in our own mind and try to convince the people in our churches, uh, these are our presuppositions, but they're true. They're not just true for me, they're objectively true. They're objectively true. Any other? All right. Let's get. It's a little stickier. What's the second one on your on your handout? Is it? It's it's pot. Okay. Good. All right. Well, um, I already gave you my introduction for why we need to think about pot. Have any of you had that question come up in your congregation? Yeah, yeah. About what? But what are we supposed to do? What about me- medical wear- marijuana, things like that? Um, it's interesting. Colorado has not made near as much money as they thought they were going to make off of because because well, how does the state make money off of marijuana? They tax it. Is medical marijuana taxed? No. Some and. Who, what kind of people have access, or, or what's basically in a de facto way the only requirement for getting a medical marijuana card? Desire, <laughs> it seems to me. If you want a medical marijuana card, you can get one. You don't have to be terribly crafty. You don't even really have to lie that much to get a medical marijuana card. Um, and so, and it's a lot cheaper. It's a lot cheaper to go there. And in Oregon, um, uh, people can grow their own. And, uh, and I, I had a police officer tell me, he goes, you know, I, I, I can't keep uh, plastic flowers alive. They, do, they wilt, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm horrible. But I could grow marijuana if I wanted to. They don't call it a weed for nothing, right? <laughs> Anybody can grow pot. It's not that hard. Um, and so I think this idea that, hey, we might as well be making money off it, that's, that, it's not going to make near as much money as people think. That's been Colorado's experience already. It's been Washington's experience. Um, so anyway. All right. So legalization, recreational use of marijuana in Washington and Oregon. In Oregon, I think it takes effect mid-July or something like that. Yeah. So y- y- we're going to have to start facing these questions. And the answer can no longer be, well, it's, it's against the law. So no, you can't. You can't do it. Um, so how are we supposed to think through this? We're going to have to think harder. We're going to have to think accurately and rightly on marijuana. It's going to require us to do some homework on this. Um, it, it, 
when I did the Spurgeon Fellowship, the running joke was all the different names that we could have for the topic. You could have, you know, like the, the pastor in pot, the minister in marijuana, the deacon in the doobie. I, you know, you guys can just do, you, you, there, there's just legion. That's <laughs> incredible. Uh, yeah. Um, holiness and hashish. You, 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 we could just go on and on. It's, just, it's, it's kind of fun, actually. Um, and it's fun even if you're not high to, to do this kind of thing. So, um, all right. So, if we can't just say it's against the law, that means we're going to have to do some homework. We're going to need to think about what actually goes on with marijuana. Um, there are no Bible verses that specifically address marijuana. Okay? Now, there will be websites, and, and if there's if you have people in your congregations who are committed to smoking pot, they'll go to these websites and they'll find, wait, the Bible doesn't even say, thou shalt not smoke pot. doesn't say that anywhere. Okay? Well, you're right. The Bible, you can go to the concordance at the back of your Bible, look up whatever it is you want to call it. There's no pot, there's no doobie, there's no tree. There's, well, there's tree, but tree of life, I don't think you could say that same thing. Um, but, so it's not there. But the Bible is sufficient. The Bible, God gives us all the words that we need to live faithfully before Him. Okay, so the Bible does speak to this. It speaks sufficiently to guide the Christian into faithful living, even on this issue. It's just, it's not going to be simple, like going to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4b, hoping to find, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not smoke weed. Okay, it's not going to be there. So what do we need to do? Well, first off, I think we need to educate ourselves just a little bit about what marijuana actually is. What does it do? What does it do? Because we can af because before we can address how we're supposed to use something, we need to know what it is. Function always follows essence. What a thing is determines how we use it. I say this all the time to my kids when they're jumping on the couch, right? I went with my little ones. I always say, what is that? And they say, and they say, it's the couch. Good. What is the couch for? It's for sitting on. Good. Is it for jumping on? No. No. Well, okay, so where are you going to go jump? And if they're being smart, they're going to say, on our beds? Right? No, on the trampoline. On the trampoline. At, at the neighbor's house or at our house or, or wherever, right? That's what you do. Uh, the, the bed was not made, the couch was not made to jump on. It, it will break. Right? You'll ruin it if you use something in a way that was not designed to be used. So we need to know what a couch actually is. Once we figure out what a couch is, then we can use it appropriately. It's for sitting on. That's what a couch is for. Pot, marijuana, same thing. How does it work? How does it work? Well, marijuana actually is technically a stimulant. I don't know. Did you guys know that? It, it's, it, it has both depressant qualities and stimulant qualities to it. It acts as both a stimulant and a depressant. Uh, the, the main ingredient that makes pot pot and not hemp okay, is THC, THC, which stands, which is the chemical name for tetrahydrocannabinol, and it acts as an agonist, an agonist. It's an agonist of the cannabinoid receptors in your brain. And an agonist is a molecule that mimics a biological molecule that will activate certain receptors. So basically it's just an artificial thing that goes into your brain and does something that there are other things in your brain that will do the same thing for, naturally. Okay? 
The, the, the cannabinoid receptors are very important. They're located all over the Bible, but especially in the brain. And, and they change the tendency of a neuron to firing. It's kind of like they activate it. And that's what I mean, that it's an agonist. That's the technical term for it, it's an agonist. But, but it's, it, it basically flips the switch on your neurons. It, it goes from like dormant to active. Just, it's on at that point. And in most of the brain, this increases the tendency to fire, which causes an increase in the dopamine levels, which causes that general feeling of pleasure and euphoria. And you've all experienced that before. Right? If you've ever been really, really happy or really, really joyful, or, uh, it, that's because your brain, God designed you in such a way that, that, that your brain will kind of wash over with this dopamine uh, uh, stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, dopamine stuff. Um, that's just how God made you. He, the Lord is so kind in that way. Do that. Here's the catch, though. Um, this increase is very dramatic. This increase in the dopamine levels is very, very dramatic when it comes to THC. And, and it does so beyond what, any, what your mind will normally do. So, so whatever it is that you've felt a high from, whether it's running or the joy of seeing something or maybe even sexual intimacy or something like that, Okay, that what's causing your brain to feel like just joyful and great is this dopamine. THC though flips those receptors to full bore in a way that nothing natural in your mind would actually do that. Does that make sense? So it, it's it, and, and it's much quicker. It's just it, it's kind of like all systems on now, just like and it happens fast. Happens fast. Um, it also. The hippocampus, it will cause a decrease in the firing, and the hippocampus is responsible for memory creation. And, and it's almost like that part of the brain stops working at this point. It decreases firing also in the cerebellum, which is responsible for motor control, which is why it, it kind of acts like a depressant at the same time. Okay, so it's, it does both. It's just it's very particular about the ones that it's flipping on and the ones that it's flipping off. When it flips off, that's like a, 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 it's acting like a depressant. When it flips something on, it acts like a, uh, a stimulant. Um, now, there's real things chemically going on in your body when this happens. The cellular reactions will create the following short-term effects. Things like memory loss, learning prevention, Diminished problem-solving skills, motor coordination lost, increased heart rate, weakened decision-making ability, and an overall distorted perception of reality. All of those things are what, at least the recreational pot smoker, is looking for. They're looking for that. Okay? It's, a, it's a drug in, in that sense. Um, now, I, I said that, that, that there's a loss of motor control. Okay, well, what does this mean? It means that our law enforcement officers are going to have a, are, they're faced with a bit of a dilemma, aren't they? And, and it's, it's been a real problem in the States. How do we figure out what inebriation levels are for pot? We've kind of got it down with alcohol because we've had a lot of experience with alcohol. We've had a lot of, ex I mean, alcohol's been around for a long, long time, and, 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 and we've been able to establish, establish blood alcohol levels, and, you know, and we can make them conservative so, to where we can outlaw people from driving if their blood alcohol levels a certain amount, that sort of thing. Well, there's no impairment level of a marijuana 
from caused by this THC that's been established. It's kind of just like shooting in the dark at this point. And it's, um, a lot of law enforcement officers are not real happy about this. Yeah, how are we supposed to do this? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, largely because there is no standardization of potency, these THC levels in marijuana. In, in alcohol, we've got down to a science, right? We have uh, proof for alcohol. There isn't such a thing for marijuana at this point. There's, how do we establish THC levels? How do we regulate it? How do we regulate it? Um, responses will vary to the same joint, and not all joints are the same. Again, with alcohol, it's fairly scientific at this point. We've got it down. Yes, there are some people who are not sloppy drunks. They're quiet drunks. Right? There, there are some people who, who have learned how to live at a certain level of inebriation. But by and large, if a person of a certain weight drinks a certain amount of alcohol, we can predict exactly how they're going to respond, for the most part, okay, generally speaking. And, 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 and that's how we base our laws. Right? That's what we base our laws, just these generalization stuff. Marijuana, we have no idea at this point. Um, there's no standardization of potency. Responses to, this, to the very same joint so like if, if there's two different, I mean, let's say there's three different people. One is big, one is small, and the other is small, and, and, and they each inhale the same amount of, of a joint, their response will be different. Each one of them will be different. It doesn't seem to have as, it's not as tied to uh, body weight. And the reason for this is because when you're breathing it in, you're not digesting it, you're inhaling it, it gets to the bloodstream just like that. Okay? Very, very quickly. You would have to drink and drink and drink in order to get drunk, right? For a while. When you smoke pot, it's not like you, you smoke and you smoke and you smoke and then after a while you begin to feel the effects. When, for, for the pot smoker, the effect is much more rapid. Much more rapid. Um, and growers are breeding for higher THC pot potency. THC, not THC. THC potency. Um, because you can charge more for it. If, it, if it's more effective, then it can get you what you want quicker and you can charge more money for that. And so growers are breeding for that. And again, it's kind of a mystery what we're going to do in the state. So th that's a little bit about how marijuana works. Okay? A little bit about how it works. Let me see if I... I didn't say this. Oh, um, while your brain is developing, we do have pretty good science. So while your brain is developing marijuana use, you shouldn't. You just shouldn't use it. It, it can have permanent effects on, on the brain. Um, for women, that would be up to about 18 to 20 years old. So anytime before 18 to 20, um, and 18 to 20 is a little bit late for women, um, it's not a good idea because the effects can be permanent. For guys, <laughs> it takes a little bit longer. Uh, for guys, uh, about uh, up to 21 to 23 or so is what scientists are looking at. To where if you, so say like a 40-year-old a, a smokes pot and they just smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke. They could stop the next day um, depending on the addiction issues that they might have. And it will have no long-term effects on them. There, there appear to be no long-term effects for marijuana use for an adult. For youth, though, there are well-established uh, permanent effects. And you've probably run into people who, who have been heavy pot smokers, and, and you can tell. 
You can tell. Um, not just because, well, never mind. All right. Okay. So that's a little bit how it works. Any questions on any of that? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really the, like, the expert on, on marijuana, but, but that's a little bit about how it works. Okay. What does the Bible have to say about pot? Nothing. What does the Bible have to say about alcohol? Not a whole lot. But it does have a lot to say about inebriation. Inebriation. Okay? So, I think we need to look, why does the Bible say that inebriation is wrong? Why does the Bible say that drunkenness is wrong? Why does it say it? Well, first off, it's just flat prohibited. Okay? Don't get drunk. Right? We know that. That is a sin. It is forbidden by God. Okay? Why? Does the Bible say that getting drunk is wrong? Well, here's a list of some of the things that the Bible says. Um, you'll see things and you'll imagine things. You'll get addicted to it. You'll lose your judgment towards sin. I'm getting a lot of these out of the Proverbs. Proverbs have a lot to say about inebriation, right? Loss of physical control, loss of wisdom, loss of financial control, physical illness. You'll embrace foolishness. It's even evidence of God's judgment. A lot of times God will judge you by letting you do what you want to do, right? Wasn't it the great theologian Garth Brooks who said some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, right? And, 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 and so one of the ways that God judges us is he lets us do what we want to do. And he pulls back that hand or restraint. And it's the same thing with drunkenness. Um, drunkenness, biblically speaking, at times, is evidence of God's judgment upon you. Okay. Um, a whole bunch of verses there. The Christian is supposed to be controlled by the Spirit. And in the New Covenant documents, the, the New Testament, that's the, Paul makes that contrast. Don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is one who's supposed to control you. Not by mind or behavior altering drugs. Furthermore, the Christian life, as we know, for the disciple, for the disciple, the one who's following Jesus, is to be lived intentionally, with no divided loyalties, no double mindedness. We're supposed to be, and the phrase is used, sober minded. That doesn't mean don't walk around like a drunk. It means be in control, be intentional. We're following a real person. Right? And, and we don't access that person through, um, through you know, medication, be it LSD, pot, alcohol, whatever. And, and, and as you know, self-control is highly valued throughout the scriptures. The, the disciple is one who has control, is intentional. And I'm not talking about control wrested away from God. It's, it's just exercising your will to follow Jesus and, and always being in control of your will. Okay. So that's just a little bit about why the Bible forbids drunkenness and, and how the, the Christian is supposed to live better than that. Okay, so what about with the law? What are the issues? Why is the law no longer a reliable guide for what's right? Well, the Christian, in, in one sense, is obligated to obey the law. We know that from Romans 13, right? The, the government is a gift from God. Um, where we pray all the time, where we should, God, give us the government that we don't deserve. Give us better. Give us better than, than, than what we deserve. But, but the institution of government is a gift from God to protect the righteous, to punish the, the, the evildoer. It, it's, it is a, a um, how would you say it? It's a common grace that restrains evil in society. That's how government's supposed to function. What the government commands, though, is not always righteous. And the Christian 
we know from explicit statement and by stories in the Bible, is not obligated to obey the government by in disobeying God. If the government tells you to do something which you know is wrong, you don't have to obey the government at that point. Now, you might pay a price for it, but you don't have to obey the government. Because at this point, the government has basically abdicated. They, they have gone beyond their God ordained right. And they, they, they have every right. God has delegated authority to them to do His will. Government has no rights ultimately in the Christian life apart from what God delegated it to do. And so what government cannot do is force you to disobey Him. You might be punished for that. We've seen examples of that, right? Just read through the book of Daniel. You'll see many examples where the government required of God's people to do something that he forbade, they, they didn't do it and they paid a price or could have paid a price. Right? So it's not to say that the Christian won't, won't be punished for disobeying government, but before God, you are not obligated to disobey God by obeying government. Okay? Does that make sense? Alright? Uh, what the government defines as lawful does not mean that it is appropriate for the believer. And we can think of all sorts. It's, it's, it's legal. It's legal to commit adultery. Right? The, the district attorney is not going to be prosecuting people who engage in premarital sex or sex outside of the, of the boundaries of marriage, right? But we know that's forbidden by Scripture. It is completely legal to commit adultery. It is completely legal to get an abortion. It's completely legal to eat like a pig. Right? Gluttony is a sin. The government's not out there telling you, uh, no, don't supersize that meal. Right? It's against the law. Right? It's completely legal to be a glutton. It's, it's completely legal to lust in your own mind. Right? No one's stopping that at all. Um, so, so just because something is legal doesn't mean it's okay. And we know this intuitively, but oftentimes as Christians we just allow the law to establish right and wrong for us. But on analysis... I just went through a number of things that the law says is completely legal, but we know they're sins, right? We know they're sins. So how does marijuana fit into this? Well, perhaps in the past looking to government to define good and evil wasn't a bad idea, but we all know that we're in a post-Christian world right now, right? And it's becoming more and more obvious all the time. It's absolutely no longer the case that the government can be, uh, can, can be reliable in establishing what's right and wrong. Just because a behavior is legal is not a reliable indicator of what God approves. So, what do we do with this? Someone in your church comes to you and says, hey, I want to smoke pot. What do I do? Well, let's start thinking about what it does. And it means we're going to have to talk through some of these things. Let's think about what alcohol, uh, not, let's think about what pot actually does. Okay? Um, and then I think we need to ask, maybe one of the first questions we need to ask our, 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 the, our Christians in our congregations is, is the goal of a faithful disciple really to ask, how far can I go without sinning? We all know that's a recipe for disaster anyway. Especially if you're in youth ministry, you probably handle those kind of questions all the time. How far can I go with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? Right? How far can I go? That's not, that's not the kind of question that a faithful follower of Jesus asks. A faithful follower of Jesus asks the question, how can I honor this very special person in my life? How can I give of myself to elevate them? Not, not, not how, can, how far can I go to get my jollies with this one person, right? And, and it, I think it would be the same thing here. I think we need to ask that. Why are you asking this question? Why are you asking it? Uh, 
Uh, and then it, we need to recognize too, we just need to be honest, that uh, Scripture does have, uh, does speak of alcohol. Okay? Now, I don't know how many of you grew up in teetotaling churches or in teetotaling families, but that would be my experience. Um, and uh, so, Full disclosure here, I, I've never smoked pot before. I've had, I, I've had very little alcohol, but that's, that's not because of any biblical mandate. It was because of my family situation. Both of my grandparents were on both sides. Both of my grandfathers were alcoholics and drank themselves to death, literally, prematurely. Um, and so it was something in our family that my parents, my mom is the stereotypical child of an alcoholic. Okay. I'm not. I'm not the child of an alcoholic, but my mom was. So that's just the kind of household that I grew up in. Um, and, and I would say pretty legalistic with regard to alcohol. Pretty legalistic with regard to alcohol. And you, you read in scripture, and what you find there is that alcohol, um, alcohol is a gift from the Lord in the Bible. Um, and there's even a therapeutic use of alcohol that we find in scripture as well. Okay. So I, I think um, most of what most of the arguments that we use that, that we'll use with marijuana are going to flow out of the teaching on alcohol and inebriation. So and so, so so now we're just remember we're not afraid of anything that's in the Bible. We're not afraid to ask questions. And so what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, the Bible does have a therapeutic use for alcohol, and the Bible also has a um, well. Uh, it creates joy. It's spoken of, of joy. Uh, that wine gladdens the heart. Bible verse, right? Um, so, so what do we do with this? Well, we need, to ask the, we need to ask the question, why is it, do we think, why is it, that, do we think, that Jesus, when offered the therapeutic use of alcohol at the cross, why did he say no to that? Why did he say no? He didn't take it. He said he was thirsty, and yet when he was offered that the the wine gall myrrh sort of thing, which which was typically used by the Romans to deaden the senses so that they could actually get through the whole crucifixion thing. Okay, why did Jesus say no? I think we need to ask that question. We need to ask that question. Perhaps the point of discipleship is not to escape suffering but to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. And so, so now we're starting to think about therapeutic uses of, of marijuana, which I think is a different kind of question, but it's still going to be related. It's still going to be related. Um, medical marijuana and recreational marijuana um, are, I think, are two different kinds of questions that need to be addressed in different ways. But, these ki but the kind of questions we would ask for the medical marijuana, I think, will be helpful, especially for the recreational marijuana question. Maybe the point of discipleship is not to escape suffering, but to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. Now, I'm not advocating any sort of masochism. I'm, I'm not saying that you need to be a flagellant, right, where you go out and you whip yourself and cause yourself to bleed for, the, for Christ or anything like that. Um, it's, I mean, I think we're all sane people here and we recognize the difference between God has put something in my life right now and I'm suffering. What is he trying to do? Maybe the goal as a disciple of Christ is not merely to escape it as quick as possible. But it's... It, and, and I'm not saying... Go out and suffer for the sake of suffering. I'm not saying that. 
Okay, does that? I, I'm not exactly sure what I'm saying. In, in, in my own mind, I know what I'm saying. I'm saying, don't suffer for the sake of suffering, but maybe when God puts suffering in your life, the goal is not to escape it at whatever cost. Maybe the goal is to be faithful in the midst of it. God's growing us into something. We know that God is glorified as we endure, as we deal with patient faith that which God has sovereignly allowed in our lives. That's what James tells us. You know that crazy talk at the beginning of James. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Well, what, what kinds of trials? All kinds of trials. How many? Many. Lots. All of them. I'm supposed to be thankful in that. Why? How? Why? Because God is doing something to you that you will never regret. You'll enjoy the benefits of it for all of eternity. Okay? God is glorified, and it's good for us as well. Christians are commanded to seek first the kingdom of God, engage in those behaviors that promote the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. But there's going to be plenty of eating and drinking in the kingdom of God, right? That's just what we do. We like to eat, we like to drink. Um, and I'm not talking about just... I'm not talking about just depressants here. We, we like Mountain Dew, Pepsi, coffee, uh, water, right? Eating. I love to eat. I said Portland is a silly place. Portland is a great eating town. It's just magnificent for that. I love living in Portland for that reason. Um, that and the Blazers. After that, uh, it kind of goes downhill for me. Um, so there's going to be lots of eating and drinking in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Right? And so we should be willing to give up such things for the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of the kingdom. Both for those around us and even for ourselves, perhaps. Um, and it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me that the end times, which are characterized as evil, are characterized by men who prioritize pleasure over faithfulness. And this, I think, is one of the biggest questions that we need to ask of a young disciple who wants to use uh, recreational marijuana. Why? What is it that you're looking for? Well, I like the way it makes me feel. Right? Uh, <laughs> no. So let's contrast this with alcohol. Why do people like to drink alcohol? Uh, yes, there, it, it, it is a depressant, and, and it can help relax. But it can help relax without causing you to be inebriated. And there are people who like the taste. Right? They like a fine wine, or they like a certain microbrew, or whatever. They like the taste. I don't know of anybody, I've never met anybody who smokes marijuana and goes, I just love the way it smells. And I, I love the way it makes my clothes smell. I love it. Have you, have you ever met anybody? I, I, I haven't. It reeks. That's what it just... I, oh well. Um, uh, yeah. And now you walk out of a theater. Now you walk out of a... And it, it's, it's just as a smell. My, my seven-year-olds can identify marijuana. I don't isn't it ironic my seven year olds can identify marijuana they probably couldn't tell me what a cigarette smells like but they know what a joint smells like because cigarette smoking is evil right our, our government has demagogued that one there's no public smoking of cigarettes and tobacco but you can publicly smoke marijuana right? you can I, I don't know that my I don't know that my seven year olds know what a cigarette smells like I guarantee you they know what a what a joint smells like. Um, and the end times that are characterized as evil are going to be characterized by people who prioritize pleasure over faithfulness. Paul warns us about that in 2 Timothy. And then I think we need to ask, where is joy supposed to come from from the Christian? Everything that I talked about with what goes on in the mind, that is a gift of God. 
That is a gift of God. All that whole, that, that whole dopamine thing, God created that. And He made it. And He made you to respond in a certain way that when you see things that are supposed to bring joy to you, that your, your mind kicks in and kind of rewards itself, if you will. That's how God created us. It's a good thing. And, and the Christian life is supposed to be joyful. The Christian life is supposed to be joyful. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? However, however, we need to ask ourselves and ask our, our people in our congregation, what is joy? And how are we supposed to legitimately get it? And it seems to me that the faithful Christian does not take shortcuts to things. Um, the, the Christian life is one that is lived out. It is a journey and it is a long journey. And at the end of probably the most faithful Christian that we know of, at least in Scripture, it, it would be the Apostle Paul, right? We don't have a, a, a lot of people that we know how they lived their whole Christian life because there weren't a lot of post-cross disciples that we read of their lives. But one that we do know about is Paul. And, and what did Paul say at the, at the end of his life? He looked back on this long, arduous journey and he said, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. And now, now, there is this great reward that awaits me. Right? Um, process is really important in the Christian life. So much so that we have this whole thing that we call discipleship, which is a way of teaching that is a go with and be with kind of thing, right? Yeah, there are books that are read, but books are a tool that help you on the way. And the way is long. And, and as Christians, we understand that, right? I mean, uh, short-term pain for long-term gain. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life, not not long-term gain. I'm sorry, not long-term, not not short-term gain for long-term loss. That doesn't characterize the Christian life in any way. I don't know any place that shows up in Scripture. What are we looking for as disciples? Where are we getting our joy and how are we going to get there? I think those are the kind of questions that we need to ask with our people when, when they come to us and they ask us the questions about, about uh, marijuana. Um, I, it, it's not immediately obvious to me that a person can smoke even just a puff. <laughs> you know, remember Clinton? I didn't inhale. Um, if he would have, he would have been affected. It happens quickly, and it happens almost immediately, the, 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 uh, the effects of marijuana. That's a little bit different from alcohol. I think we need to differentiate that, it's especially if you're in a church that, that, that is not a, a teetotaling church. Um, you, you need to be able to say, this is how alcohol works, and this is why we think in moderation this is okay, and this is how I would differentiate marijuana from this. This is how I would differentiate marijuana. Um, they're not the exact same things. It's easy biblically to see that drunkenness is wrong, but you can make a case from the moderation of alcohol use from Scripture. I think you can make that case. I don't know that you can take the same arguments for moderate use of alcohol and just apply it to marijuana. They don't work the same way. They don't work the same way. All right. Questions? I would say that. Okay, right here. Yeah. Uh, as far as going through these, this discussion and the, and the arguments 
um, how would we then uh, apply medical marijuana to yeah. opioids? Yeah. That is, that's a good question. They are, yeah. Which, we could get back to the legal. Yeah, well, so I, I think that there is a um, palliative use for drugs that is a blessing. I, I mean, so much of dying now is um, we can keep people alive and we can prolong the dying process. Um, I mean, so much of what happens at the end of life seems to be almost a prolongation of dying. And, and, and I don't think that's always a bad thing. Or I'm, I'm not, but, but, but what we do there is we use drugs palliatively, right? We use them to, to decrease suffering. I totally get that. I, I, think, I think there's an appropriate place for that. The, the Bible never tells us to suffer as much as we can. Now, you read some of the early church fathers, you would think that that's what the Bible says, but as near as I can tell, we're never asked to just suffer for the sake of suffering to the nth degree for as long as we possibly can. Because that's what being a Christian is about. No. Um, and, and so I, I, I think we need to have in our mind uh, what is the difference between the palliative use of drugs and what is just a mere escape. I think there is such a thing as, as mental illness where, where, where drugs are helpful. Um, I think there's also times where we are too quick to use drugs therapeutically. I mean, there's some people who are depressed because they are mentally ill. There's some people who are depressed because they should be depressed. They've made horrible decisions in their life and now all of their decisions are coming to bear upon them. Right. Um, I, I think we need to differentiate between those kind. And, and, and I don't know that there's a formula we can apply. I think you just do that in relationship and knowing pastorally how you talk to someone. Or not. Maybe the quickest way through depression is um, to deal with some of the stuff in your life. And if there's something that you can take along the way. Well, for example, I remember when my, mother, uh, when my father died with my, and, and my mother, she wasn't even able to grieve because she was so exhausted. And, and so like three weeks later, she goes into the doctor's office and she's just a mess and, and, and the doctor just, even the medical doctor asked her about grieving. And she said, well, I, 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 I just, I'm so wound up. And he goes, have you been sleeping? Have you been eating? I can't eat, I can't sleep. It's just, I'm just a total mess. And she was, she was just falling apart. And, and the doctor very mercifully prescribed some tranquilizers for her. And said, you're not even gonna be able to grieve until you, until you get some sleep. You need to sleep and you need to eat. Right? You need to do that. Um, and, and, and it was helpful. It was helpful for, for, for a period. So I, I, I think there's a, it's legitimate. Um, there are all sorts of, of uh, things that they're doing with marijuana now. Um, there's like the, the oil or whatever that is, it seems like it's had some effect on, on seizures and things of that nature. The thing that's interesting with a lot of those is there, is there actually, is, is that the THC is not the active ingredient in those. And so they're able to remove those. And so it's called medical marijuana oil, but it's really not marijuana anymore. It's kind of like hemp at that point, right? Um, so I think we do that on a case-by-case -case basis and, and we use discernment um, on that. I, it's, it's not obvious to me that most people who have medical marijuana cards actually need medical marijuana cards. Um, I, maybe, maybe that's the case. It's, it's not obvious to me, anyway. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I have just one hypothetical question then. Sure. If we were able to quantify in marijuana use mm -hmm. inebriation, yeah. like we're able to without mm -hmm. the difference between your heart, you know, some or your heart is glad versus... Yep, exactly. 
could quantify it, mm -hmm. would we then have to then say, well, there's and just the other one? Here. I think it and, and just. So it is hypothetical. I think at that point, we would need to start thinking again about what we say and what we do with this. I am um, I'm a little skeptical that we'll ever be able to get there because the, the impact of marijuana is so quick. It's so quick because it's inhaled right into your lungs and enters the bloodstream you know, almost immediately. Uh, alcohol takes a little bit longer to work its way through. Um, and, 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 and alcohol just enters the bloodstream and it kind of filters all the way through. That's why heavier people can drink more than lighter people can. With marijuana, um, it, it, it hits those receptors quickly. It, it's like it targets them. Um, and so again, that's why body size doesn't seem to be as important uh, when it comes to to marijuana. So, but I think if we could, then I think we would have to start, you know, I, I think the Bible's given us all the divine words that we need, but, but as we learn more and as things change, then we have to learn about those things, the context, in, in order to be able to faithfully apply the, the scriptures to it. So I think, with your hypothetical, I, I would say yes, I can see a time where we would say, now that we know how to quantify it and now we know what the effects are going to be, then we can start applying some of the alcohol arguments directly, more directly to, to it. And then the other one was, do you see a, a connection like a chemo patient using uh, marijuana to have appetite? You know, similar to like how yeah. was charging him to take a little wine. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there could be, I think there could be, um, my my medical student son <laughs> is is very skeptical though because uh, it's again it's not obvious to me that marijuana is the only way to fight the effects of chemotherapy and even though it, it seems clear to me I, I won't dispute the fact that marijuana will reduce nausea and will allow a person to eat which they need in order to not feel sick from the chemo and all that um, fortunately chemotherapy is getting better and better all the time. Um, you know, so it's it's not like sheer poison that you take. It's just mostly poison. It's it's, it's poison. I mean, chemotherapy is poison. Um, but, but but they're getting better and better with it. And so it's it's not obvious to me that we need to turn immediately to marijuana. I would, for all the reasons that I went through at the bottom. And I, if a person who's suffering from cancer wants relief from their nausea, I don't think, as a Christian, you say, you know, you're being asked to walk this go through this trial, and you need to do it sober-mindedly. And so, no, you can't use palliative drugs. Um, I, I would never say that. But I would be concerned about side effects. Um, and when it comes to marijuana, the, the nausea repression is actually the side effect of the marijuana, the, the main thing that marijuana does is the uh, high and the dopamine stuff. So uh, I would want to exhaust other means whereby I'm always staying in control as a disciple, being sober-minded, being intentional, being clear-headed. I think that's why Jesus faced, I think that's why Jesus didn't take any sort of drugs when he went to the cross. I think he wanted to face it head-on. He knew what he was doing. A person who's suffering with cancer and chemo and, and that, I, it's not entirely the same thing. And yet I don't think you want to check out totally. It, it's going to be the same thing at end of life for all of us probably, where um, morphine is 
you guys know as pastors, it's heavily used at the end, end of life situations. Um, yeah. I would say that you speak to like a pharmacia. There's a pretty popular pastor here who says, you know, don't take in, in the Rhode Valley, don't take any kind of pills on anything, don't drink. And because um, his thing is, it's a spiritual realm, and you're going to open up demons and all this mm. kind of stuff. And uh, a lot of people really, he has a lot of influence. Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't think that's sheer nonsense, right? Then that's probably why he has influence. I mean, if he were saying, I mean, if he were talking about unicorns, then, then no one would listen to him, right? There's obviously a little bit of truth in, in, in what he's saying. I just don't know that you can... I, I would have a hard time forbidding what the Bible doesn't forbid. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know that every drug is a, is a, is a portal drug. Uh, especially to the spiritual realm. I, I do know that Paul was very concerned, the apostles were concerned, that when we are, um, that when we're not in control, just because our mind is checked out doesn't mean the world of flesh and the devil have checked out. Matter of fact, they're pretty opportunistic at that point. And I think that's why in the New Covenant letters we're instructed to be controlled by the Spirit, why we're supposed to be sober-minded. Um, clarity of thought. It, it goes back to what we talked about in the first part, right? We have nothing to be afraid. That we don't need to fear the truth. We always want the truth to be on our side. We, all, we want to be on the side of the truth. So, so, so be sober-minded. Be clear-thinking. It's when we're not sober-minded that bad things can happen. I'm just not sure that I would go to the lengths of forbidding something the Bible doesn't forbid. The Christian life is hard enough to live. And the last thing I want to do is bind, bind the conscience of a person to do, to, to do something the Bible doesn't command or to forbid them from doing something the Bible doesn't forbid. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was a pastor for 12 years in a part of our area that's really well known for marijuana. And uh, so it's something we, I kind of just encounter mm -hmm. consistently. And uh, so the difficulty comes in in that there are some people who are very high function. They, yeah. they smoke marijuana all the time. They hold down a job. Yeah. They're responsible they're, for that. And, and, and they're white collar jobs too, yeah. And um, by all outward appearances, yeah. um, it's, it's not affecting their life negatively yeah. in any way. Um, the, the medical thing, you know, like we had a gal in our church who uh, was HIV positive. Mm -hmm. The drugs that they give her to keep it from becoming AIDS um, kill her appetite yeah. and make her vomit all the time. So then they want to give her another drug, but that kills her liver. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So she turned to marijuana. I was fine with that. I sure. didn't have any problem with that. Yeah. Uh, the, the harder thing is when somebody doesn't appear to be inebriated. Yeah. They drive, they yeah. hold down a job, they're high functioning. Yeah. Then these things that in some ways become a non-issue because mm -hmm. there's no impact. So how do we, how do we apply yeah. that? Yeah, well I, I, I think I, I, I wouldn't question what you were doing and what you were recommending with the HIV patient. I, I totally get that. Um, I, I, I mean as long as she wasn't just totally checked out all the time. Well, uh, yeah. to be fair, I did have to revisit her and say, yeah. 
Uh, I heard you're selling it for cash out the okay. door. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It became real clear at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 see, it's a gateway drug to all these other things. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're selling. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that's why I think we need to think about what a faithful disciple looks like. And, and, the, and I, I didn't develop it a lot, but, but where does joy come from? What is it that you're turning to marijuana to give you? Uh, you're turning to marijuana to give you something that the Lord has designed in your mind. See, this is, I, and I think that's a gift. So like all that dopamine stuff that I talk about, I think that's a gift from the Lord. A very kind gift. That, that feeling of joy, that feeling of euphoria. Um, but, 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 but there are, it seems to me that marijuana at this point becomes a shortcut, an artificial way to getting this feeling, whereas it is is the pursuit of the feeling that the reason that you're doing this and is that what a faithful Christian ought to be doing? Um, so I, I, I mean this is why I think that we're going to I think that that's a good question we need to think through that and I don't know that our presupp that our answer has to be a presupposed just no to all these we need to figure out exactly what marijuana is why are people wanting to smoke it how is this consistent with the Christian life it's, it's, it's going to take just a little bit of open-minded thinking because if our presupposition is anybody who smokes pot is a total loser right they're the stoner who's smoking pot out in the alleyway behind the high school right I mean that was my experience right um, well that's not the case Right? And so you can't make those kind of arguments. So we're going to have to think, what, what, what is marijuana? How does it work? What is it doing in the mind? Uh, how has God designed us? And then think through what the faithful disciple looks like. How is the Christian life supposed to be filled? And so I guess the question that I would have for the, 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 you know, like the, the, the high-functioning good father of your parent is, uh, why do you want to smoke pot? Um, and are you trying to do something artificially? Whereas God designed that as a reward for certain other kinds of behaviors. I, I, I guess it's going to take hard thinking, which is why I wanted to come and talk about that this, this morning. Yeah. Uh, it, it sounds like you're walking around Philippians 4 8, mm -hmm. whatever is true, whatever is pure. You know, there, there's an element of what's profitable yeah. to our lives, and that's where I think you have to break all the sound foods. What's our reason for it, what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And is it profitable as a disciple of Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Good. Larry. I think the other thing uh, in your example, which is a great example, is what kind of example are you setting for the people around you? I mean, I like a glass of wine. But I've got a lot of friends and neighbors that are alcoholics who have a problem with wine. Yeah. So I can't drink my glass of wine. Around those people. Yeah, and so there's, I mean, that's Paul, right? Who, who just says, I, I won't eat meat if it's going to cause my brother to stumble. Well, and, and, so, you know, and so that's the essence of a disciple, right? It, it, it's someone who's bent on serving the Lord, not himself, serving others, not himself. I think these are the kind of questions we need to think of. We have to give a, a vision, if you will, of, of what a faithful disciple is and what a faithful disciple is motivated by. Not not poo-pooing or dismissing the, the good things that God has given us. I mean, I, so I keep repeating this. That God designed our brains this way. 
dopamine is a really cool thing when it comes the right way, right? We, we, we love that feeling. It's really cool that, that the best things in life, God designed us to just have joy. And there's actually a chemical that washes over our brain that does this. I, that's so cool that the Lord would do that. He didn't have to. He could have just been a slave master. Do this. Instead, he, he creates us to love and to delight in these sorts of things. But, but what's the right way to get there? And, and, and does God, if, if God designed us this way, that, that feeling is a good feeling, but how do we go about getting there? Has God designed the means to get, or has God regulated the means to get to that reward as much as, well, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. There's other ways to digest or, you know. Yeah, the brownies and all that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The question is, the narcotics like Vicodin and all ibuprofen. Yep. You know, how many of us took ibuprofen this morning? <laughs> so then the question is, is it bigger than, you know, we're kind of pinpoint marijuana and left back? Yeah. Well, I think that's where we need to ask that question. And, and, and here's where Jesus is helpful. Why did Jesus deny himself the palliative use of a drug? Um, and, um, I, I, and that's a hard question for people who are suffering. But, but Jesus suffered as much as anybody has. Why did he want to go into that sober-minded, thinking clearly, totally intentional, I mean, if there was anybody who would have wanted, who, who had reason to check out and, and like just kind of be put to sleep, it would have been Christ. The, the, the horror of the cross, the physical horror, the emotional horror, the spiritual horror, all of that would have gone away. And yet that was not what Jesus wanted to do. Why? Is there something for us in that? Heavens, I take, I take ibuprofen. Um, but if I was unable to think clearly, then I would have to question my own use of, of that. Yeah. But that's a good... good. Well, it doesn't just this go to the, the sense that, uh, I mean, our culture does a lot of things thoughtlessly. Just says, hey, you have pain, take some. Yeah. Um, and we never actually think about the long-term effects. I mean, ibuprofen actually has a long-term effect on our body. If you take it every day, you're, you're changing without thinking. Uh, but but as as disciples of Christ, uh, people who believe in, in a loving God and, and the gospel that changes who we are, we can we can face suffering in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, it just seems that we, we shouldn't be thoughtless about it like the rest of the people. There's an intentionality that is required yeah. of the Christian. Yeah. In all things, whether it's supersizing or yeah. you know everything else, we should mm -hmm. think it through the, the lens of the gospel. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, I got one other topic here. What time is it? I don't even know what time it is. Can I say real quick, like, we're already a little later than what we had thought on this, but, um, so if you need to leave, I think I know Todd well enough to know you're not going to offend him. Or yeah. We are going to have audio of this available for you guys if you want. Um, we'll put it on our church website or something like that. Um, this last topic in particular, I don't even feel is right to cut off for those who can stay, because this is one that really made me have to think about a lot of, like, we've met with attorneys even over this kind of stuff. It's kind of yeah. a so if you need to leave, by all means, go. And I'm, I'm totally happy to do a Reader's Digest version of it. Because um, I, I see the clock over there. I didn't, so. Right, we, should I, we just plow ahead? Yeah. Go for it? Okay. All right. So the, the last one that I have on here is, is uh, homosexuality. 
Great. And I didn't bring my notes up with me. One. Enter. Um, come on. Okay. All right. So there's a book out right now written by a fellow named Matthew Vines. Uh, it's called God and the Gay Christian. Has anybody read that before? Okay. I, I, would, I, I would commend it to you um, as a pastor because it's having an enormous impact. Matthew Vines uh, presents himself as an evangelical. His, his gospel presentation or his articulation of the gospel is, is pretty uh, spot on. Um, but he's asking the church to rethink uh, its stance against homosexuality, okay, and um, and and it's a persuasive book. It is written very winsomely. He's a he's he comes off as gentle as a dove in the book, just beseeching the church. He's not angry or cranky or anything like that. Um, it, it is a flawed book. It's a logically flawed book, and it is a hermeneutically flawed book as well. And so I, I would read it, and I think in the notes I gave you a couple, or, or access to one response to Matthew Vines. I mean, if you Google Matthew Vines, you'll find his stuff. He's got a whole website. He's got a whole ministry now. His story is, is that he, he's a faithful evangelical church-going Christian, uh, finds himself, uh, who knows, at like eighth grade or whenever early, attracted to boys, not to girls, doesn't tell anybody, lives his life faithfully, sexually faithfully, right, uh, to God, um, and, but comes to a point of crisis where he's, I think he's at Harvard, actually, so he's a bright guy, um, and, uh, and, and begins to research the whole thing, comes out to his father. Uh, his father is an elder in the church who had told him that homosexuality was wrong because the Bible says so, um, and then Vines basically tells his story, okay? So he, he, here's how he argues it. Here's how he argues it. In the book, he says, uh, the scriptures say that we're supposed to judge a thing by its fruits. And, and then he tells you lots of stories. It's an appeal to emotion. Lots of stories of gay Christians who have been tormented by the church and have gone on to commit suicide or, or hardship and heart, heartache and that sort of thing. And he goes, so if, if we're to follow Jesus in discerning a thing or a prophecy or a prophet by its fruit, then we have to judge this to be a failed one. It, it is wrong. The church's stance against homosexuality has caused pain. Therefore, it's wrong. Okay? And so that's how he starts the book. Right. He hasn't talked about the sin issue or anything like that, but right at the very beginning, he causes you to think it's an appeal to emotion, is what it is. It's appeal to emotion. Jesus said, judge something by its fruit. This is bad fruit. Now I need to start rethinking this then. Okay? Then, then he begins to go through the Bible verses, and he starts, to his credit, he starts in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 which is where he should start. Okay, so, and I'll tell you this. Why is this book so persuasive? Matthew Vines, God and the Gay Christian. It, it is persuasive because it is winsomely written, and it is persuasive because he sounds like an evangelical. He quotes all the Protestant popes out there. He quotes John Piper. 
He quotes D.A. Carson. He quotes Tim Keller. He quotes John MacArthur. He, all these guys. Now, he's, obviously, he doesn't quote them in their condemnation of homosexuality. Uh, but, but, but if you look at the people he quotes, they're all the high-powered celebrity evangelicals out there. Okay? Um, and, 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 and he will tell you, he says at the beginning, I hold Scripture to be authoritative. It is the Word of God. It is true. And so he does what any evangelical ought to do at this point. He goes to the... When we're talking about marriage. I mean, if, if, if you're talking about marriage, where do you go? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, right? Talks about the creation of the man and the woman in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he, or, or, well, he, creation of humanity in Genesis 1, and then I think the, the expanded version in Genesis 2 of the creation of the man and the woman. What he concludes there sets the stage for the rest of the book. He concludes that the creation of the man and the woman, the emphasis is not on their difference, the difference is on their sameness. They are same. He says it's not good that man should be alone, and so what does God do? He creates someone who is not like the animals, but someone who is like him. Eve was like Adam. They, were the, they are the same. Okay? And, and, and so with that, he just brushes away any sense of gender complementarity. That, that, that the female was made for the male, and the male was made for the female, basically, right? Um, and they're different by design so that they can complement each other and have this thing that God then calls marriage, okay? He, he, he totally denies that. Now, he's investigating the scriptures, but, but he will say right off the bat that the reason that God made Eve was to make someone the same as Adam. Remember... Adam's alone. It's not good that man should be alone. What does God do? Trots the animals before Adam. But why? But, but what did Adam see? What does the scripture say? There was no one, what? Like him. So what does God do? He makes someone like him. Okay? And, and, and so, so, so with that, he just denies the difference between a male and a female. That's not the point of marriage. The point of marriage is finding someone like you. And, and so, so it's, it's just off the table now, any sort of difference between male and female. And with that is any sort of idea that marriage was instituted to propagate the species. Okay? So the whole uh, be fruitful and multiply, yes, that's important. Yes, it does take a man and a woman. So he's not stupid. He knows it takes a man and a woman to, to have a baby. Okay? So he, he gets that and he admits it. But the emphasis is on the sameness. Okay? Now once he's done that, once he's done that, then he can go and he can pluck off all of the prohibitions that he finds on homosexuality. He isolates them from the biblical text and then through an, an argument of obfuscation. Um, and so I'll ask this because it's, it's, it's the point. Does anybody know what obfuscate means? Okay, so a couple of you. So that's the whole point. Obfuscation is to make something look really complicated. So complicated that what could it possibly mean? If you obfuscate something, then you kind of muddy it up. And, and, and that's what he does. And so, so a clear prohibition on, on um, 
Well, for example, you, you might say something like, I, I'm not even going according to my notes here. A, a, a clear condemnation on, uh, from, from Leviticus. It is detestable for a man to lie with a man as he would lie with a woman, or you know, however it words it. Um, he, he starts bringing in stuff about how, well, I'm not sure we can say that this is what it means because it's part of the purity laws and what does detestable actually mean? There's other places. And, you know, we as Christians, we don't follow the Levitical law anyway. How many of you have stoned your children when they were rebellious and disobedient to you? You know, th things like that. Okay, and so maybe we need to rethink that. And then he goes one by one through all of these verses. And it's largely through an op through an argument of obfuscation, trying to make what appears to be very plain language muddy. Maybe I'm not so sure that it's as clear-cut as I thought. And then when I know that the emphasis on marriage is on the sameness between Adam and Eve, and I also know that we're supposed to judge the scriptures by the fruit that they bring, didn't Jesus say that? You'll know a prophet by his fruits, or a false prophet by his fruits. So, and, and, I've all, and I already know from the beginning, the opening chapter, that this has brought pain. This doctrine has brought pain. And now I need to go to the scriptures and look at it. And, and, and marriage, it's not what I thought. It's not that men, men and women are different. The emphasis is that men and women are the same. And then, then, I, then I move on from there. And one by one, he picks off the verses isolated from, from any sort of biblical theological context. He isolates them and picks them off, just like a sniper would. Boom, 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 boom. And then he returns back to his premise at the beginning and he makes a plea for people to, um, to accept homosexual marriage. Okay. This is a, a very influential book. Because it's not written by some cranky gay rights guy who's, who's so distastefully effeminate. Right, that we, you know, I'm not even sure I can listen to this guy. He, it, it's, it's written by a guy who looks like a kid in your youth group. He, he's a very boyish looking guy. Furthermore, he's not arguing for, uh, for uh, uh, homosex, right? Just wanton with whoever. Sex is reserved for a person who's married. And why would you deny to me what the Lord has given to you? Right? And, and, and he'll say, I'm, I, I totally believe that sex is reserved for marriage. And, and, and he'll say, I'm a virgin, and I'm waiting for the perfect guy. Right? Um, it's having a huge impact. And I, I would recommend uh, that you read it. Um, read it along with some argument against it as well. But, um, and the reason I would recommend it, because I guarantee you that there will be people in your congregation who have read it. Um, that there are no theological walls placed around um, the places from which these things disseminate. It's a mouse click away on Amazon. It's a mouse click away to, to just watch his teaching. He's very, very influential. And I don't know if he is a brother in Christ who is just deceived on this or if he is just totally evil. But whatever he is, he is very persuasive. And, um, and he's an attractive, charismatic guy. Does that make sense? Yeah. So God and the Gay Christian. There's another book out. It's, God and the Gay Christian came out a couple years ago. Um, there's another one out. Written, last name is Gushy. It's having the same kind of effect. Okay. I, I, I think his argument from start to finish is totally flawed hermeneutically. I, I read it on Kindle. I had 121 comments where I was just like, <laughs> type, 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 like this. Um, it, it is flawed. 
But, and, and I think the reason it's thought is because of the logic at the beginning. Appeal to emotion is not a good argument. But that's what he does, and we need to just call it that. We don't know how to think logically anymore. We're swayed by logic, by bad logic, because we don't know how to make a good argument anymore. Um, he's, he begins with appeal to emotion, and it basically poisons everything else that, he, that he's going to say that that non-affirming Christians have to say about homosexual marriage. Um, you guys know my name by now, right? So I'll put that up. Um, all right. So, and, and then when it comes to the text, he makes the same kind of arguments each time through. And, and they're the same arguments that have been put forward before and the same arguments that have been debunked because the Bible says what it says. The Bible says what it says. Um, from beginning to end, the Bible uh, prohibits homosexuality, and I think it's on the basis of what Vines denies at the beginning of his book. It's on the basis of gender complementarity. God created the man, and he created the woman, and they are different by design. They have different functions, they have different roles. In, I mean, at the most basic level, we can all agree that women are different than men on plumbing and their role in, uh, and, and, the, and their different roles in, um, in sexual intimacy and things of that nature. They're just different, right? You didn't have to come here this morning to hear that. Um, uh, the, the, the arguments are, are the same then from that point on. Once he just brushes away gender complementarity, that is different by design, and says the focus of marriage is on the sameness of humanity, the sameness of the man and the woman, then, then it's, it's just a short step to, so because it's all about sameness, what really is the difference between marriage between a man and a woman and marriage between a man and a man? The difference was with the animals. That's where image of God lies and things of that nature. So this is how he argues it. How, how does he, what are some common arguments that, that we hear for this, and it's throughout this book, um, Jesus didn't ever condemn homosexuality, not one time. And this is repeated over and over again by Vines. It's repeated over and over again in all the literature. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. The, uh, another argument, and Vines is not, he doesn't make this argument as strongly, but he does a little bit. The biblical authors, particularly Paul, did not understand human sexuality. Um, they, and, and this is the argument that he makes throughout, Vines makes this argument throughout the that the biblical writers did not understand sexual orientation. They just thought it was all about lust and abuse. That the reason, between, the, the reason that sex between a man and a man was wrong, he says, was because it was all about patriarchy and that everyone in that world believed that women were inferior to men and a man should never act like a woman because that's acting unmanly. Okay? And, and, and if a man and a man are having sex, then one of them is going to have to act like a woman for it to work. That's just how the thing goes, right? And that's just wrong. And that was the basis by which it was forbidden. Well, we understand now, we understand now that women are not inferior to men. Interestingly, he never appeals to Scripture to make this point. He appeals to Plato and Aristotle and all these Greco-Roman and ancient Near East writers who have bad things to say about women. Was the Bible written in, at a time when there was rampant misogyny and patriarchy? Sure. Does the Bible represent that? No. I kept writing over and over again, what does Plato have to do with Moses? Answer, nothing, nothing. <laughs> uh, the, we believe that the Bible was inspired, right? Written by humans in their context, yes, but divinely inspired by God. There's two authors, 
to any one passage of scripture. There's a human author and the divine author. And the divine author understands human sexuality quite well. Thank you. Actually, I think the biblical authors did too. No one needed to tell them but the birds and the bees, right? Remember Mary? How can this be? I'm a virgin, right? She got it. She understood how this whole thing works, right? <laughs> Didn't take the 1960s for us to understand the birds and the bees. We get it. Um, uh, the, another argument, the Old Testament pro prohibitions are part of the holiness code. Sodom was all about hospitality. He, he makes that case. He makes that case. I, I, I've, done, I've done public debates at Oregon State on, on, on uh, is, is uh, homosexuality, is gay marriage Christian, that kind of thing. Um, I hear this all the time. The Old Testament prohibitions were part of the holiness codes, and they're talking about, you know, don't have sex with women when they're in their menstrual cycle. That was forbidden by Levitical law as well. And it's right there in the same passage as the other, as, as prohibitions on, on uh, homosexuality. So, and we ignore one, why can't we ignore the other? We're New Covenant believers anyway, right? So that kind of argument, I'll, I'll walk through each of these um, in my response to them. Uh, the, the Bible's outdated, doesn't reflect popular consistent commitment to tolerance, all of that. We're just mean. That, that's what that breaks down to. Okay, Jesus didn't condemn homosexuality. Let's, let's, let, let's think about the stakes here. First, the groundwork is now laid in our culture for the denial of homosexual marriage to be a hate crime. R remember what's happening up in Gresham with the cake. The, the big question that Christians in Portland now is, would you bake the cake? Would you bake the cake for a gay marriage? Would you do that? Right? And that's the kind of thing that we have to think through, especially if you're a public school teacher. Are you going to teach the curriculum? In, in Portland right now, uh, if you want to be superintendent of public schools, you pretty much just have to be lesbian. I, I don't think it's written down, but it might as well be. It might as well be. Okay? Uh, and so, so what do you do? Do people question this? Uh, are we thinking about this? Does it have any impact? Can a, can a homosexual teach your child math? Is that okay? I mean, these are the kind of questions that we're facing at, at this, this point, and we need to understand our answers to them. Um, it, this, the, the authority of the Bible, I think, is at stake here, because even though Vine says he, he he says all the things evangelicals are supposed to believe. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. Well, you're believing your watered-down interpretation of the Bible. And there's, there's a difference there. Uh, the integrity of the gospel. It's interesting to me that Paul when, and Jesus, when they talked about the nature of the kingdom and the gospel, that they tied the logic of the gospel to the logic of marriage. It seemed, remember in Ephesians 5, Paul says, as he's talking about how husbands are supposed to treat their wives and wives are supposed to treat their husbands, that he ties it to the gospel. He goes back to Genesis 1, this one flesh relationship, and he says, this is a profound mystery. I say that it refers to Christ and the church. If, that, if Paul is right, and we know Paul was, uh, if Paul is right, then the gospel logically precedes marriage. That is, God looked down at Adam and he said, it is not right that man should be alone. And, and what did he do? He said, I'm going to make a way for man not to be alone and I'm going to give them a picture of the gospel because the gospel has always been foremost in God's mind. When we monkey around with marriage, I believe we are monkeying around with a a general revelation of the gospel. And it, because when, a, when the world sees a wife submit to her husband, and when the world sees a husband sacrificially lay down his life for his wife, they will see Jesus and the church. And that is important. And we despise ourselves if we mess around with that in our society. It's worth, marriage is worth defending. And I'm not saying go off and be a cranky advocate or anything like that. Right? But marriage is worth defending for their sake. For those outside the church, it's worth defending for their sake. 
and also the future autonomy of the local church. And I'll get into some of the mechanics of that here in a second, which is probably why you came. I probably should have done that first. Um, just some quick answers to some of these questions about Jesus and homosexuality. But let me back up and do one that's not on there. Yes. The reason that God made another person for Adam was that there was no one like him. But it, and you've heard all the jokes. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Please don't ever put that on a sign and pick it that way. But biblically thinking, that is a very profound statement. God did not make a sexual same for Adam in order to help him. He made a sexual other. And that is significant. Why? Because there is diversity in the unity that is God. And God said, I'm going, let us make man in our image. It's on the first page of your Bible, probably. Genesis 1. Well, it's on the second page of mine. I got big print. It's a nice preacher's Bible. Um, Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, man, but I think standing for mankind, right? So there's a mankind. Him, singular. He creates one thing, man. Male and female, he created them. There's a diversity within this unity. Now, Jewish scholars don't know what to do with this. Let us make man in our image. What is this us? Who is this? And as Christians, though, we're Trinitarian. We understand that there's a plurality. Not plurality. How about this? There's a diversity. There's a diversity within the singular God. Okay? Be careful. I don't believe in multiple gods. Um, but there's one God, three persons. As clumsy as our Trinitarian language is, we're, we're getting at something that this allows for. I'm not saying that Genesis 1 proves the Trinity. But I'm saying as a Trinitarian, this makes sense. I get it. And that's important. And so when God, and, and God says that he makes man, but he makes them male and female. There's a difference between a man and a woman within the sameness. Vine's only got half of it. Yeah, he didn't make someone like the animals. He made someone like Adam, but he made someone also unlike Adam at the same time. And that is very, very important. Okay? Uh, this is part of it. Yeah, go ahead. I've never really understood why the, why the Jewish people didn't understand that God was a compound unity because Elohim is plural. It's plural. Like family. You're right. It's a compound unity. Yeah. A single entity made up of more than one. Yeah. It, it even gets tougher than that because... Because Elohim takes a plural takes plural verbs uh, too. Typically, it, it's it's a it's an awkward construction. It's there, right in front of their face, all the time. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. It's a it is a tough one. It's a tough one. And and yet the doctrine of the Trinity. We look back on it now. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It begins to make. We go. Oh, like, okay. It, 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 we don't even stumble over the language of diversity within unity. Okay, the problem with the one and the many, right? Um, that, and, and is marriage all about having kids? Is sexual intimacy all about having kids? No, it's not. It's not. It's, uh, but you can't, it's not less than that. It's not less than that. It's part of it, but it's not less than that. Um, so anyway, so that's my Genesis 1 thing. Vines is right. There's a sameness to the male and the female. But he's dead wrong in denying that there's dissimilarity that is there by design and it's important 
It's really, really important. Okay, um, now let's get into the, the other things really quick. Uh, no, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. Jesus didn't talk about a lot of things that are clearly wrong. Probably because, where was Jesus ministering? I mean, where did Jesus spend all of his public life? It was a relatively short life and an even shorter public ministry. Where was he? I mean, this is an easy question. Israel. What, what kind of people live in Israel, for the most part? Not Portland. <laughs> it's not Portlandia. Jews. Very, very conservative. You have this grassroots organization that's getting these religious people to act even more religiously. Right? There wasn't wanton immorality. That wasn't the big issue. He didn't spend a lot of his time talking about those things because he didn't have to. Paul goes throughout the Greco-Roman Empire and he has to start addressing sexual sins that I don't think were around in first century Judaism. There is, there is nothing on the wanton sexual sins in, in first century Judaism. Words are people who are committing adultery. No doubt. No doubt. But did that characterize their, their culture? Did, did sexual wantonness characterize the Jewish people of the first century? Heavens, no. Uh, so of course he didn't talk about it. It wasn't an issue that was before him. But Jesus actually did talk about homosexuality even though he didn't use the words. Like, a lot of people think, Jesus never talked about homosexuality so therefore we can do whatever we want. Jesus talked a lot about sex and he was, and, and, and he was not a libertine. He actually got it narrower. He narrowed it. First off, Jesus affirmed all the law. So all that stuff from Leviticus, he affirmed it. Okay? Second, Jesus from marriage. Every time Jesus talked about marriage, what did he talk about? He went back to Genesis 1 and 2, male and female, male and female, male and female. That was a big deal to him, the male and femaleness of it. Every time he spoke about marriage, he went back to Genesis 1. Even, even as he was trying to ratchet in some of the divorce that was going on, there was more liberal divorce than what Jesus was comfortable with in Judaism. And he says, yeah, I know. Moses gave a certificate of divorce, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. Moses was trying to regulate something for the sake of protecting the vulnerable in it. The reason there's all this allowance for divorce in the Mosaic Law, I think Jesus is getting at here, because there are people that were going to be hurt by it if he didn't regulate it in some way. But it wasn't supposed to be that way at the beginning. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Um, God created man and woman together, one flesh. What God has put together, let no one tear apart. Jesus also had this ridiculously high standard for sexual purity. Rather than being a libertine, what does he do? He says, you know, you've heard it say, I love the, okay, so Jesus is being very rabbinic because the rabbinic way of teaching is to quote other rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this. So Jesus says, well, you've heard it says, do not commit adultery. Well, what, what rabbi said that? Who said don't commit adultery? God. <laughs> God. You've heard it said, yeah, God, God. Remember God said don't commit adultery, but I say to you, but I say to you. The Greek's really fun there because they do something in Greek that we aren't able to do in English as well, unless we boldface print it. Um, it says, literally, it says, um, Lego de ego. Not, not, not Lego, my ego. Uh, Lego de ego. Uh, Lego, I say, but, and then a pronoun, I. Uh, so if a really good English translation would be in bold, I. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, I say to you, what? Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus was not a sexual libertine. He didn't come to break open the boundaries of a prudish Levitical law. He came to narrow things down to the heart. Jesus had a lot to say about sex. A lot. Okay. Um, Paul and human sexuality. I, I just think it's 
chronological snobbery to think that Paul didn't understand things. And, and an argument that pervades, that he establishes and then just assumes from the beginning in that Vines book, is that people didn't understand sexual orientation. That, 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 that homosex, I'll, I'll just, homosex is my verb for homosexual practice, um, that homosex was all about dominion and patriarchy, but two loving, consenting adults wanting to be intimate, that's just not in view in any of this. Um, no, Paul, Paul talks about nature at this point. And Vines has a lot to say about nature. It's just not persuasive at all. Um, Paul did attract same, uh, Paul did address same-sex attraction as a sin against nature. Um, yeah. Uh, Old Testament texts. There's lots of uh, oh, so Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we, we get our term sodomy because of of Sodom, um, and it is true that in the Old Testament that that they that. Sodom and Gomorrah are condemned for their inhospitable acts. Okay? Um, and I, I grant homosexual rape is an inhospitable act. Okay? Uh, we can all agree on that, right? No, that's not in dispute. But you can't separate what they were doing from their inhospi inhospitality. In, in the same way that in Romans 1, Paul talks about us kind of swirling the drain. Right? Uh, until he gets down to, and finally God gave them over to their nature, men attracted to men, women attracted to, to women. It, this is evidence of God giving people over. And then they do all sorts of things. And some of them are, are sins that are, you know, acceptable in our churches, and others are just horrible, you know. They're, 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 un, they're, they're, they're disobedient to parents. Children are disobedient to parents. Yeah, I mean, all of this is bad. Everything in Romans 1 is bad. Um, but, but, but the homosexuality is also bad. <laughs> also bad. Um, and, and what Vines never addresses is he never establishes that homosex or homosexuality is a sin. He just assumes that it's not from, from the beginning. Um, you can't separate the homosexual rape from the inhospitality. In my mind, what made... I think the narrative bears this out. What made the 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 sin of the uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah so heinous was that they were doing wretchedly evil things to people, not just that they weren't sharing their milk money or they were stealing it or something like that. It, it was it was homosexual rape. Yes, they weren't interested in a loving, intimate relationship with the angels. I, I grant that. Yes, it was an act of violence. I grant that. But the, the nature of the act itself was horrifying. And God judged them for it. We can't separate those things. Um, and then the, the, the idea that, yeah, th there's a lot of stuff in the Levitical law that we don't obey. Um, well, there's a lot that we do, and we need to think about what each law in Leviticus is actually forbidding. And it's going to take some hard work. And no, it won't do just say, well, it's forbidden in Leviticus, therefore Christians aren't to do it. Yeah, w we need to admit, yeah, there are some things in Leviticus that under the New Covenant are, are allowed for us. And I'm grateful for that. I love bacon. Love pork products, love all, all that, okay? But there's a reason. There's a reason why some of the things we no longer have to obey and some of the things we continue to obey. And we need to think through what, why that is. Um, and we can, I can talk more about that if you want. Church actions to consider. Church actions to consider. Um, I thought I had a piece of paper here. Where's going to talk about this? Because I thought 
thought I wrote some stuff down. Just a second here. Let me find my correct. Oh, here we go. Good. All right. Um, church actions to consider. If you want to remain biblically faithful on this topic, uh, I think you're going to need to take some steps as a church to protect yourself. We live in a highly litigious society. And if we have learned anything from advocates of homosexuality, it is that they are brilliant social changers. I mean, could, who would have imagined that the, the, the sea change that has taken place in our paradigms? Who would have ever thought that? I mean, I, I'm 40, I'm almost 48, grew up in the 80s. I, I, I still remember, you know, National Enquirer talking about Rock Hudson and that sort of thing. For some of you who are older, some of you who are younger, it has happened so fast, so fast. What do we conclude from this? The homosexual advocates ha are brilliant. They are brilliant. And, and, and they are wise as serpents. And they know how to get things done in this world. And they are honestly a take-no-prisoners sort of thing. Every now and then you will run into the homosexual advocate who is now ashamed, who is now a little bit, of a, a little bit ashamed over the way that the left is now treating the Christian church. They're saying, all we wanted was acceptance. But, but, but now we are doing to them what they always accused us of doing. And, but, but that is the rare writer. Most of them are happy to do a victory dance on the head of the church, and they'll use the courts to do it. We live in a highly litigious society, and homosexuality has been litigated into the mainstream. It has been entertainmented, if you turn that into a verb, into the mainstream. Okay? But we can't ignore the litigation part as a church. Um, and so what steps can we take? I, I think the church membership is crucial here. I think we need to think about having membership. I don't know how many of your churches have membership already, um, but if you want to remain biblically faithful on this issue of homosexuality, and I think from beginning to end, the Bible condemns homosexuality. From beginning to end, the Bible affirms man and woman as, as what marriage was designed for and gender complementarity and all of those things. So if we want to remain faithful on that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, because Paul tied the male-female relationship to part of the logic of the gospel, um, then we're going to have to take some steps in order to be faithful in a highly litigious, antagonistic society. Uh, church membership seems crucial here. Um, now, church membership is not commanded anywhere in Scripture. Uh, but the Bible does tell us a bunch of things that we're supposed to do. And it seems in our society right now, the best way to do those is to have some kind of membership. How we do the one another's. Um, membership seems to be an appropriate way to do the things that the Bible does command us to do. All those one another's and all of the taking care of the people and, and knowing who you have charge over and all of that. Maybe when you were just part of, you know, First Baptist Church Corinth and it was the only church in town, uh, you, you didn't have to have membership because if you were a Christian you were just part of the church and everybody knew it right you know there wasn't first Baptist second Baptist third Baptist and then all the other denominational arrangements out there if you were a Christian you were part of the church they might not have had formal membership yet the the, the, the leaders of the church knew who they were supposed to be taking care of there were widows roles and things like that so whatever mechanism it was they knew who was part of them and who was not 
who they had charge over. Um, and, and I think this is going to be really, really important for us uh, in, in this current climate. Because at our church, do you want Okay, because, yeah, at, at, at our church, we use membership now to basically um, define almost everything that we do. We have placed membership requirements on weddings, on our employees. In order to be employee of the church, you have to be a member of the church. In order to get married in the church, you have to be a member of the church, at least one of you. In, in order to live in our housing, we have a bunch of houses that we own. Um, we are not just landlords now. By definition, we have tied our, our, the houses that we own to the ministry of the church. In order to live in our houses, you have to be a member of our church. We have described every staff position that we have in our job descriptions in terms of ministry. We're not hiring just a receptionist. We're hiring a Christian minister who will have these duties and responsibilities. And therefore, we expect them to maintain... Um, well, we expect them to be growing disciples of Christ. Okay. Um, we have this big stone building. I don't know. So, so I go to Henson Church in Portland. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's this big stone building. And big stone buildings are still really cool for people to get married in. Um, and, and for a lot of churches, that's how they supplement their income. Uh, and they'll advertise, you can get married in our building. Come look at it. It's, it's quaint and cool. And um, we've, We just don't do that. Now, we've given up some ministry on that because probably everyone here, if people come to you and say, hey, will you marry us and you don't know them, you would probably say, well, I'll only marry you if I can do some sort of premarital counseling with you. And, and that's been a great arm of ministry. I'm, I'm sure that if, if you have not yourself been a part of it, you heard stories about how people have come to Christ through the premarital counseling. I, I totally get that. That's just, in, in our context right now, that's just a ministry we've, we've had to say, in the past we could have done it, we can't do it right now. We can't do it right now. Because, you know what, that, that, that gay couple who walked into the, to the uh, bakery in Gresham, there were a boatload of other bakeries they could have gone to. They went to that one because they knew they were Christian. And, and they were armed with a lawyer, and they did it on purpose. They weren't mortified. They were hoping they would be turned back because they were looking to make a statement. And now this couple, a very godly couple, who just spoke out of their own convictions, they've had to shut down their business. They've had to shut down their business. And, and they didn't cause any emotional distress to this family, or to family, to, to this gay couple. They, they didn't harm them in any way. They went there looking for a fight. I'm not even sure if they would have actually bought the cake if the, if the people would have... Because they probably had other people they would have rather had make a cake. Anyway, I'm speculating at that point. I do know, though, that they did it intentionally. And, and, and you're, you're, we're finding this over and over again. There, there's a take-no-prisoners approach to this sort of thing. What that means now is that the climate for ministry has changed. And, and there might, and at least for us, we've decided that premarital counseling for, to get married in our facility in the past people have come to Christ through this but now we can't do that anymore because we get probably two to three wedding requests a week in Portland 
Um, and we're able to say, you know what? We would love to marry you, but you have to be a member of our church first. That's just what we have to do. So, so we have a wedding statement. It's very clear. We'll, we'll even send them the wedding statement uh, about what it takes. Um, and we perform all the weddings. Now, we'll bury anybody. <laughs> we'll, we'll bury anybody. We, uh, we're not willing to give up on that one. So if, if, if you, uh, if a person were, were, were a homosexual and wanted to have a memorial service in our church, that's totally fine. We get to preach at it, though. Or you can't do it at our service. Well, I'm just going to let you use our facilities. Um, but, but we'll bury anybody. But, but we're not going to marry people. Um, unless they're members. Um, what this means is you need to tighten up. Oh, also, um, hopefully you practice church discipline at your churches. Um, now, if you don't have membership, I don't know what you do for church discipline. Um, but uh, if, if there were people in your congregation who decide that they're uh, gay, and, and this has happened at, at, at our church in the last five years, there, there was one person. Um, we went through the steps of church discipline with them. Uh, but we had done our work ahead of time, thankfully, on this, and we had all of our church discipline steps clearly articulated. We even had a lawyer look at them. There are evangelical lawyers who will look at your protocols and your policies, and they'll do it to help you. They'll do it to protect you. Because so far, the courts are very hesitant to, to intrude and say what you believe is illegitimate. As long as you... Uh, courts right now in America, at least for now, are not willing to tell you what you have to believe. As long as you're upfront about what you believe, and then if you act in, um, in a manner that's consistent with what you say you believe, and, your and as long as your protocols are there, th then, then it's fine to discipline a person for homosexuality. Um, but your protocols have to be in place ahead of time for, for uh, church discipline. Um, and then... You might want to also think through tightening up your statement of faith. Uh, you might want to include a statement on the family. Uh, theology is always contextual, right? Um, so, um, Kim, when you went to Western Seminary in the 60s, right, what, what systematic theology did you use? Do you, was it, was it Dr. Cook's notes or something like that? Yeah, Dr. Cook's notes. Well, we don't use those anymore, right? Not because we disagree with Dr. Cook. <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't use them because the, the questions are always changing and it has to be updated. Calvin's Institutes are a wonderful systematic theology. We're not really fighting that many battles with the Roman Catholics right now, right? So we don't use Calvin's Institutes. Right? So we're all, theology is always contextual. It's always bringing to bear God's powerful word to the current situation. So theologies will always have to be written. Your statement of faith is going to have to be updated. Um, I think statements of faith should be bare bone. But you might, in our current climate, you might have a statement on the family. You might. You might have a statement that says, I believe that marriage is the holy union between a man and a woman, or something like that. You can do that. What, what we were able to do, because we're a conservative Baptist church, is the conservative Baptists, years before, had a much longer, broader identity statement that they had come to, that, that, that had like a paragraph on the family. And, and what we were able to do as a church was just say, here's our bare-bones statement of faith, and then go to this identity document as a faithful exposition of what we believe. 
you know, because our, our statement of faith is like boom, 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 pretty short. And I, I could send all that to you um, if you want. Um, and then we were able to adopt the the uh, um, the identity documents we, as what we felt was a faithful exposition of what we believed. And, and that was very helpful for us because it didn't seem knee-jerk to ask. And, and we, we, we would not, we couldn't be accused of just doing something for the sake of keeping the gay people out of our church. Um, gay 29 did that with the Lausanne Covenant. Yeah. So they have their statement of faith and at the end we also affirm the Lausanne Covenant that's been around forever. It's been around a long time. It's been around a long time. So please don't accuse us of suddenly just making something up. Right. And that, that was a good way to do that. Uh, because if it looks like you just um, you know, did something for the sake of doing something mean-spirited or whatever, then, then, then that will be exposed. Um, and, and I know it's a bummer to sit in here and think about, well, I mean, does that mean I have to have a lawyer on retainer? Yeah. Can I, can yeah. I add something on this? this? To contextualize it maybe a little bit for us, because um, I went to, um, actually at Henson years ago, um, Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist, if any of you guys know him, pretty well-known author and stuff, was there speaking. He was speaking at one point about church membership. And, um, and I grew up in North Carolina where Southern Baptists, everybody had church membership. It was no big deal. When I moved to Oregon, particularly Medford, um, I was really surprised how controversial church membership is. And so, uh, so I talked with Mark Dever about it at length. And, um, and he was like, you have to have it, you have to have it. Like, you don't understand our culture, man. It's a, and, and so in the end, he was like, he kind of finished by just saying, you just need to teach your people and, and make it a mark, make it a goal. So, well, okay, whatever. So went to this, um, uh, what was it, two years ago, whatever. Two years ago. Um, and heard all this and came back and we talked about it with a leadership team. And, um, and I went and talked with our attorney, which I know even just looking around this room, I know we share attorneys with some of you guys. So I'm, if you have or haven't talked to your attorney, you might want to at least check in. Because what he told me was that he's having this conversation two to three times a week with churches throughout the valley, and he's giving the exact same advice that Todd was giving. And what he's saying is that the, the judges and the courts are reluctant, um, and, and not, not even reluctant, resistant, to get involved into established membership roles. And the example he used was Augusta National Golf Club, the Masters, coming up real soon, right? They had it on their books forever, women can't be members. Um, the courts didn't change that. Public pressure did, but the courts had no interest in getting involved in any of that because they had a clearly defined, this is what it means to be a member here, and people sign on already. And so what he was saying is that churches that don't have these things in place, um, once the laws change, that say you can't make those sort of divisions anymore, um, then you're pretty much out of luck at that point. And so what he said you have to do is tighten up your bylaws. You need to have a statement of uh, marriage in your bylaws in advance. And, and he urges, has urged us, and, and I'll just be honest, I've even already hinted at it many, many times from the pulpit that, um, that this is probably what's coming for heritage. Um, doesn't mean we can't minister to people that aren't members. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean there's certain things we cannot do for people who aren't members anymore, and weddings will just be one of those. Because uh, um, it starts with the cake makers, um, but the next thing you know, you're talking about, well, wait, what about government-sponsored tax-exempt organizations who are still doing the same thing? And and the lawyer was just straight up, but not an evangelical lawyer, um, 
<laughs> I think he, if I'm not mistaken, all the lawyers in this office are Christians except this one, and he's the one they want to be the bulldog to go do the dirty work, which I think is hilarious. But, um, but what he was saying is, like it or not, comfortable with it or not, it's coming. It's coming. And so it's at least things that I think, my opinion, I, I'm not trying to run an English church. I know for us, we felt as a leadership team, we need to at least have some discussion about this, this kind of stuff and decide um, how serious are we going to take some of those things, balancing off with the uh, um, the importance of the ministry, the gospel, and the community that we have around us in the first place. It's, for us, it's caused a, a lot of discussion. And that was kind of eye-opening for me because before it was really easy to go, oh, that's Portland. <laughs> Bedford's not like that. It is. I, I mean, I've gotten calls from people to do um, gay marriages and things like that. I'm sure some of you guys have too. And so I, I don't know. I would encourage you to talk to your attorney and, and see if what he's telling you is the truth. I, I'm pretty sure he's going to. Um, and that was just eye-opening and helpful for us. There's a bunch of other good good reasons that this will come into play. We've tied membership to our, I mean, even our children's ministry and nursery workers. And boy, that's a, that's kind of a bummer, but uh, but it helps us. It protects us, not on the homosexual thing, but on the like child predator thing, uh, to have our members be um, our, our children's workers. It's just one more layer of protection. It's not, a, it's not foolproof, but it, it's one more thing that we've been able to do there. And, and, is that, and that's been a bummer for a lot of people. Does that mean I have to become a member in order to, uh, to serve in the nursery, to hold babies? And we say, yeah, <laughs> just, it's just the world we live in right now. Anyway, so. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Any other questions on any of this? Thanks for coming and hanging out for three hours or whatever time it is. It's almost 11, is that right? 10.30 right now? So, it's 11.30? Good night. Sheesh. Well, there you go. Um, let me pray for you, just briefly, and then we'll be done. Father, I, I pray for each man and woman here as they discharge the different duties that you've given them in the local church. Uh, enable them to, gospel, to minister the gospel well be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, to listen well to you, to see what you have said as, as their primary authority and their sufficient authority, and then give us wisdom and discernment about how to interact with people who would seek to undermine the faith uh, of the church, the, both the young and the old, the strong and the weak in the church. Uh, help us, Father, to, to, to be faithful to you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.